Blank check with Griffin and David. Blank check with Griffin and David. Don't know what to say or to expect. All you need to know is that the name of the show is Blank Check. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, podcasting time's here. It's a good Australian. You're getting better. Thank you. It's sort of subtler. Remember, no matter where you go, there you podcast. <laughs> <laughs> that that uh, line was written for this movie, right? It was. That was the first time that Max... Did this wrote. movie invent two men enter, one man leaves? Like, is this the movie that came up with that? I think so. And this movie also invented fighting. Yeah, right. People had never come to blows before and, Thunderdome. And then after this, everybody got a Thunderdome. I know. It became the hottest backyard uh, accessory. Can I just start out right off the gate? The audacity of this movie, the confidence. If this had been titled Mad Max colon Thunderdome, you'd go, oh my God, fucking cool title. I can't wait to see what a Thunderdome is. Right, but this movie goes, no, no, we're beyond Thunderdome. <laughs> we you are, don't even know what Thunderdome is yet, but we don't need it. You we're dumb idiot. We're beyond Thunderdome at this point. They're first telling you they're beyond. You go, beyond what? Thunderdome. I didn't even know that Thunderdome existed until you point. just told me. Why do they, they call uh, it that? That you were beyond it. Well, well, because the first half is Thunderdome. The second half goes beyond Thunderdome. You go beyond Thunderdome. What I, I understand. See, and what I want to see is a pie chart that shows all of the movies, the percentage of movies that take place on this side of Thunderdome sure. versus the films uh, it's like, that are beyond Thunderdome. Right. Not many. It's I like can think the, of one. My, one. my favorite joke of all time, the, you know, what they teach you at Harvard Business School, what they don't teach you at Harvard Business School. Like, you buy those two books, you're like, that's it. Uh, that's this, all the knowledge. This movie's beyond Thunderdome and also, I think, uh, Mystery Alaska <laughs> is beyond Thunderdome. Yeah. Yeah. That movie does those have a Thunderdome sequence. Yeah. Uh, J. Rose miniseries. Got it also has the Rangers tying a fucking local Alaskan hockey team. It makes me so bitter. I cannot stand it. Anyway. Is, here's a question. Is Mystery Alaska J. Roach's second best film? Third? It, it sort of depends on where you fall on the Austin Powers is, I feel like. His best movie is Austin Powers 1. No question. It's no question. It's also one of the great debuts. Yes. A, a, a really promising debut. And then after that, it's sort of like... You know, what do you want? You want a power sequel? Do you want one of the Fockers movies? Right. He did what? Two? He did three? Two. two. He did two. Are you weirdly into Dinner for Schmucks? I always confuse him with Tom Shadyak. That's fair, but Tom yeah. Shadyak's weirder than Yeah, he's got difference. the hair. Well, and, and, and Roach then, is like, I'm very political and I'm very serious. Right. He's like, yes, we have to talk about Trumbo. Yes. And he, wait, Let's which talk one about of Trumbo did. on every episode of Blank Chat? Shadyak. Oh. <laughs> which one of them did Bombshell? Uh, Roach. Right, Roach. Roach. Shadiak this year did uh, Brian Banks, the mm. movie about the football player who was accused Deleted of a lot of emails about that movie. Yeah. yeah. But here's the key distinction is that Roach does the recount movie. Yes, that's right. Which, he does. He becomes the HBO electoral right. recreation movie Have you ever guy. wanted to watch a Wikipedia page <laughs> right. starring a lot of famous people here? Because Curtis Hansen, I think, is supposed to direct that, gets sick, drops out, Roach jumps Cause in. Because Curtis Hansen had done Too Big to Fail, right. which is much better than Rico. Agreed. He's a better director. He yeah, was true. a far better director. Than Jay Roach? Yes. How dare. I'll say it. I'll say it. Knives <laughs> out. We're going beyond Thunderdome in this episode. I'm ready to fight. Two directors enter, Steelbook one director talk. leaves. Okay, we'll get to Steelbook Talk in one second. said Knives Out. But Roach... Jumps into that movie last second, yeah. does just the most gentleman's straightforward job, just directing the script with yeah, a good cast. I watched that movie while I was like folding my laundry right. and it was okay. That movie's watchable, right? And then he like wins an Emmy and he's like, 
Hmm, legitimacy. <laughs> and then he just becomes all about, like, I need to be taken seriously. Except he also does Dinner for Schmucks in the campaign. He does. Here's his last 10 years or whatever. Since I yeah, Dinner for Schmucks. Recount seriously. Schmucks. Game change. The campaign. Yeah. The, the that's comedy. That's him trying to split you know. the atom and go, can I do both? Trumbo. Yeah. And of course, that's. I'm writing in my bathtub. That's right. That's when he won the golden bathtub. <laughs> and then all the way, another HBO political right. movie. Right. Uh, another Cranston. play, yes. Yes. And then, of course, Bombshell. The biggest Perfect. bombshell of 2019. We Boom. all remember it. Now, Shadyac, it's the opposite. Because both Roach Shadyac and Shadyac just went cr- start out he, doing he, very broad, very silly, right? Uh-huh. And then have their, like, uh, come to uh, to Valhalla moment, right? Uh, for Roach, it's, oh, my God, I won an Emmy. I'm a very serious politician now. And for Shadyac, it's like reading The Secret. Shadyac gets into a bicycle a, accident. In a bike accident. And has enough. a brain injury. Yes. And then gives away he all has, of like, his personal tinnitus. belongings. He has like a ringing in his ears problem, I think. Right, but he's like, all of this is meaningless. Hollywood is a game that I don't want to play anymore. He gives away all of his belongings. I think he lives in like an Airstream trailer. Mm-hmm. And then he makes a movie called I Am. I Am. And then Hollywood keeps on trying to uh, offer no, excuse him. me. According to Wikipedia, this film asks the question, what is wrong with the world and what can I do about it? It's a good question. Hey, it's running question. time, 76 minutes. So good. clearly that movie solves the problem <laughs> fast. That's all you need. But they like, there was, uh, I think a New Yorker piece on him where they talked about that he was still getting like $10 million offers to direct big studio comedies. And they'd be like, Shadyac, we need you direct The Incredible Mr. Limpet. And he'd be like, the only way I'll do is I can rewrite the entire script to make it about fracking. (laughs) (laughs) Here is Shady Act. Because he does Evan Almighty, which is the first green production, which is why it's also the most expensive comedy ever made. Here is Shady Act's run. Yeah. Ace Ventura, Pet Detective. Masterpiece, 10 out of 10. Which if you ask him about it, he goes, Ace is just about love. It's about pure love. I can see it. He does get a blowjob like five minutes into that movie. Uh, From what, a cappuccino monkey? (laughs) No, from a fucking woman. That movie is insane. It's a loving blowjob, though. Yeah. Number two, Nutty Professor. Huge hit. Humongous. And people forget, like, Eddie Murphy, like, swept the Critics Awards for Best Actor. Like, that movie was everywhere. And it was coming off of, like, seven straight years of Eddie flops. Now, number Massive three, and Eddie. here I'm going to read Fran Hoffner's review, her letterboxed review of this film, which I have memorized. Okay. The film is called Liar, Liar, and uh-huh. her review, he can't lie. <laughs> sure. Uh, which is a movie I've seen, like, 40 times, and it is pretty bad. Massive success. Uh, yeah. Yeah, excuse me. No more tyranny slander on this. More tyranny's great. Here. She does have a pretty. It's it's a junky role. Currently sure. in like season three of her not making out with Dr. John Carter on ER. Oh boy, it's got to happen one of these that days. That takes a while. No spoilers, but they do. All right, then Patch Adams, which I guess is sort of his like Michael Bay doing Pearl Harbor, where yes. it's like, can I blend what I'm right. known for with like Oscar Bay? It's like Michael Brest doing Scent of a Woman. Martin Brest, it's, yes. I'm right. sorry, Jesus Christ. Michael Brest and Martin Bay. They got combined at a Transformers. Yes, uh, <laughs> Transformers. yes, yes. Which uh, is critically reviled, but is right. a enormous success. Yeah, but can we talk? Can we come up with a phrase for that? Which I've just discovered, mm-hmm. where it's like the director's like, "I'm going to do my thing plus Oscar bait." It's because that's the thing about Pearl Harbor. It's not him yeah. making Green Book, though. No, but Green Book, I think, is the same thing. Yeah. Green Book is so comedy-ish. It's so. It, I know it is. I know you're. Well, that, I guess that's the more quote unquote successful version of it. I right. Think. It's sort of like looking for Valhalla idea, yeah. like looking for legitimacy. But yeah, I don't know. What is then, the term? yeah, uh, well, we'll, we can we'll think about we can okay. crowdsource it. Yeah. Then Dragonfly, don't forget Dragonfly. Right now, that's him just going totally off the reserve. That's the I, Costner near death oh, experience I movie. Felt yeah. the boob during Dragonfly. <laughs> 
Humble. A oh, brat. not even that humble. I think Woo. it was a good one. Um, uh, I haven't recently, I think the most recent episode of the show that aired at the time we're recording this was the uh, Rachel Getting Married episode mm. in which boob feeling was discussed. I oh, I forgot about that. The speakers, and so I'm just, you know, picking yeah, up the torch sure. where I found sure, it. Sure, sure, sure. But uh, very true. <laughs> sure, 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 sure. Then Bruce Almighty, colossal hit. People Humilious. forget. And in both cases, Liar Liar was coming after. Yeah, they were both like Carrie Truman Rebound Show. movies. Yeah. No, no, Liar Liar is before Truman Show. It's after Cable Guy. Oh, right. They're both like Carrie just being like, let me give you a comedy. Right. I'm going to make some faces. I'm going to do some right. voices. And, and people are like, thank you. Bruce Almighty is post Truman Show, Man on the Moon. It, but it's and, also like post. Majestic. Isn't it post number 23 or is it no, pre? No, pre. Okay. It, was, it was the three dramedies and then he right. comes back and does a okay. straight down the middle. Just funny. And it opens to $70 I remember million. That dollars. Griffin, I remember that opening till the day I die. I'll right? that opening. I think 240 domestic. It was huge. Uh, and, then, and then Evan <laughs> Insane. Almighty. We'll never then say Evan God. Almighty. Right. Uh, which is, that's the blank check. If now, we did Shadiac. Right. Now, Evan Almighty is, he was like, look, if I'm making this movie, it's going to have a serious environmental message. Right. The film is half PSA, sort of in like tone. And it also, it costs $180 million. It was quite, it was quite pricey. Well, Lauren, was the most Lauren Graham was uh, commanding a hefty fee at the time. <laughs> Gilmore right. Girls was at the height of its popularity. I mean, they always say the three things you don't do are shoot on water, water. animals. Don't build arcs. <laughs> cast Lauren Graham Children. as Steve Carell's wife. Right. But the other thing is that was the first movie where Shadyac was like, we're going to be the first studio movie to be carbon neutral. Right. And there were not the mechanisms in place right. to that, know how Well, to hey, do look, that, it's pioneering stuff. Agreed. Good for him. I feel like that movie feels like it's always a, a hair away from just becoming like a Christian family values film. Correct. Right. And right. it's fighting right. that impulse it's the so entire weird. time. It's such a weird Then movie. he did I Am and then last year he had Ryan Banks, which right. just like, I just remember like, getting these emails. It's like he was, he was a football player who was accused of rape and he was wrongly accused. And I was like, is this like a movie we need to have right now? Yeah. And I never saw it. It actually made $4.4 million. So Morgan out. Freeman all a over the trailer. A lot of the trailers out there were uh, yeah, finally a movie for us. Morgan Freeman's in it uncredited. But all over the trailer. Well, it feels like they use all 30 seconds of his performance in the trailer. I do love Aldous Hodge. I feel like anytime that he guy's in a movie, rules. I'm in safe hands. It's great in clemency. Great in Clemency. Great in What Men Want. We talked about that. Great in What Men He's Want. He's so fucking charming. Great in that Kevin Bacon show I have definitely never seen a single frame of. Oh, uh, but I'm, City just, on I'm a just Hill. assuming. Yeah. It's supposed to be great in that. And look, let me say, this is a podcast about three things. Aldous Hodge, Jay Roach, and Tom Shadia. Yeah. Right. It's called Blank Check with Griffin and David. I'm Griffin. I'm Dave. And we psyched you. It's not about that. It's about filmographies. Although we did just speed round to to filmographies in totality. I, yeah, it's true. I mean, Shadyak, I guess we'd podcast almighty. Would that be what we do? Ooh, well, if we do, because we thought March Madness 2020 was going to be the vulgar bracket, and then it ended up being the, the But he could be on a vulgar bracket. bracket. He could be on a vulgar bracket. Yeah, that'd be fun. Mm. It'd be fun to do. Yeah. Uh, and Roach would be on our woke bracket. Because Roach actually makes you think. He makes uh, you laugh. If we but do a woke bracket, I resign from the bucket. <laughs> Roach makes you think. <laughs> he does make you think. He makes you think, can I like nap during this movie and not miss anything? That's how I felt during no, Remember Bombshell. that very woke scene in Bombshell where he makes you think about the ugliness of men uh, leering at women in a workplace by uh, keeping leering his camera at, a woman at the workplace? Yeah, yep. on, on Margot Robbie's yeah, panties no, for I, fucking I'm 15 aware. minutes. It's not a good scene. That is a long time. Long time. That's <laughs> just one unbroken 15 shot. 15 straight minutes. It's wow. like going through other scenes that she's not in, and you're still <laughs> hearing that audio, and the camera's focused solely on her panties. What a gross movie. I'm glad it won uh, Best Picture. It happily did not win Best Picture. Although, it's, tragically, it, it did totally deserve the Oscar. It did win. 
makeup. Oh, totally. Oh, yeah. Well, that guy's a fucking genius. Yeah, he's a genius. Remarkable. And yeah, yeah. Even though, honestly, I will say, I mean, the the Megan Kelly job, yeah. incredible. The Lithgow is Roger Ailes' job. That no. more just felt like he was like, I don't know, I have this. I have, you know, he like got the Churchill suit. He's like, I put you this paint on. Your masterpiece. You frame yeah. it. It doesn't yes. really matter. Right. You know? right. right. Um, yeah. You know what did win Best Picture? Parasite. Ooh. Isn't that insane? Yeah. You know what's cool about that? Um, that it, that's cool. It's so crazy. It's very cool. Can I tell you guys that I just interviewed Bong Joon Ho? I uh, you got no doubt. Oh shit! On the phone. How did that go? Him. That's so lovely. cool. What did you guys talk about? Uh, Kelly Reichardt, because he was basically interviewing her while I watched. That's what was happening. Did I not tell you I was doing this earlier? Like, what? But this posted months. You were ago witness to an interview. I basically like interviewed Bong Joon Ho and Kelly Reichardt together about First Cow. It was an episode of Iconic Class. Because he loves Kelly Reichardt. Okay. And, but really, it was just like me watching them talk and just sure. sort of like do it. That nice. sounds wonderful. It was truly wonderful. It took him 25 minutes to figure out how to do Skype. Uh, okay. How did, how okay. Did, I, I have so many questions. I, how mean, that came I, to be, I, but, I concocted uh, it with a press person. Great. You know, I know how much he loves Kelly. Visionary of you. Yep. That's, uh, um, but it was just so cool. Like we were just waiting. So it was like Sharon in picture, his translator, mm-hmm. and Kelly. The great Sharon Choi. You're the great Sharon Choi. Uh, and we're just kind of like, and Sharon's just getting texts from him being like, ah, he's trying something else. Like, it was just like a Skype thing. And then suddenly he pops into frame mm-hmm. wearing a big red sweater and just a wall of DVDs behind him. And he was like, I'm in my house. Yes. And I was like. <laughs> uh, he may be currently the greatest living human. He's very cool. He's, he's it's tough, and quite lovely. He's a human what a, what Paddington a nice level right He now. really does. He does have a bit of a Paddington energy. Yes. <laughs> um, what a sweet man. Chaotic Paddington. Sure. Mm, um, right, right, right. David, did you ask him the burning question? Here's the thing. The question about the movie Burning? He loved, he, he specifically in his first question uh-huh. shouted out Night Moves. And did you ask him what his favorite performance <laughs> in not. the final scene of Night Moves that not. isn't Jesse Eisenberg? Because they were already talking about aspect ratios or whatever, and so they were off the races. But he specifically said Old Joy and Night Moves. Yes. Mm. Uh, where the two, because apparently he like rushed her on the can stage. There's just something I love about night moves. I can't put my finger on. Yeah. Or, we're uh, talking about like a Bob Seger song. <laughs> it's named after the Bob Seger okay, song. Okay. I believe. Yeah, it's no. a movie yeah. that Griffin was in. Oh, directed by Kelly Reichardt. Watched by Bong Joon Ho. Watched and enjoyed hey. by Bong Joon Ho. I'm That's gonna awesome. start listing that as a credit. Yeah, <laughs> I have been enjoyed by Bong Joon Ho. <laughs> I, I can't say enjoyed, but certainly watched by him. Mm-hmm. Um. Is it blank check? I gave the introduction, but you here's did. the thing. This is a miniseries clearly, as if you couldn't already tell, on the films of George Miller. It's called Mad Pod Fury Cast. We love it. Wow. And, and uh, this is the uh, third film in the Mad Max trilogy, Record Scratch Quadrilogy. It's also the third film in his career. Yes. It's pretty crazy that he just came out of the gate and was just like, one, two, three, moving yeah. on. Um... And then, and then surprisingly came back to Mad Max when I felt like that was never going to happen. It took him uh, 30 years later. Yeah. Pretty nuts. Mm-hmm. Um, but this film today is called Mad Max Beyond Thunderdome. Mm-hmm. Let's get past the Thunderdome. I would happily stay in the Thunderdome for the whole movie. Me too. Yeah. Um, I'm going to read Roger Ebert's quote on the Thunderdome in a moment because I love it. Um, but joining us from IndieWire, from Indiana Jones and the Kingdom of the Crystal Skull, from Howl's Moving Castle, from Le Village. Mm. Are there any? Crouchy Tiger, Hidden Dragon. There you go. Yeah, that's uh, oh, the Doctor Strange episode. Which Patreon Guardians episode? No, Guardians Two. Guardians Two, maybe. But uh, I'm counting. I guess there's one and two, three, four. Uh, this would be the fifth time. Oh, 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 oh they all 
acquaintance be forgotten. Isn't uh, that the ben five-timer is, Ben song? is digging up the five-timer's jacket from, from the carpet. Artisanally <laughs> buried <laughs> underneath the audio boom carpet. Naturally distressed. I've heard of people in the Winter Olympics wearing roots, but I've never heard of five-timers on blank check wearing a jacket with roots in it from the ground because it was... Buried. Buried. I've heard of LeVar Burton being in Roots. Well, that's one way. That's a pathway. <laughs> that is a pathway. Well, so I'll just say, sure. right, that I, I dug up the jeans. <laughs> it's true. By this I point, this show. is posting in like mid-April. Right. So, so, so the news is so out. it's already been revealed at right. the live event. Right. Uh, I dug have, up the jeans. You've dug them up. You yeah. have revealed them for the first time on stage at our live shows yes. at but, the Bell but, House. But that York. actually hasn't happened yet to, to us. It's happened we don't to, know what the results listeners. are. But they're, they're fresh out of the ground. No, we know what the result. Did you not look at the pictures? I, no, I did. Oh, Can okay. we talk about the immediate result? You buried three pairs of jeans. How many pairs of jeans came up? Two. Yep. I would say 2.2. <laughs> 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 the earth swallowed the yeah. other yeah. pairs. Yeah. One of them is more of just... Uh, it's completely disintegrated. It's just sort of a shape, a fabric shape Lots at this of the point. creative process. Yeah. Yeah. It's like, it would be like the really, really short shorts. Sure. Yeah. And then just the middle part of the, the pants just kind of hanging down like a tail. Right. It would be sort of a string uh, jean kini. It would know. fit into the, the vibe of this movie. Sure. Yeah. Costume wise. Yeah, sure. It did For look sure. a little Thunderdome. Yeah. But, mean, the, but the, Rachel, that pair died so the other two could live. Yeah. yeah. But it worked. Sure. Guys, it, I, it really worked. No, I'm very the proud ground, of you. Distress the jeans naturally. Three jeans enter the ground. <laughs> Two, Two came out. <laughs> Two jeans leave. I would love nothing more than if in uh, Mad Max Furiosa, the I would assume inevitable uh, fifth, fifth sure. film in this trilogy that or trilogy in this uh, quintilogy uh-huh. that George Miller had a scene where the people in the wasteland dig into the dunes and bring up a pair of distressed oh. jeans that have been buried there since before the nuclear apocalypse and look better than ever. Yeah. Or what about if it's like a worm tribe? Oh, boy. <laughs> Someone in the opening credits of this film is credited as visual consultant, mm. I think. Sure. And God, if the fifth Mad Max movie happens, how do we get Ben in that job? I want it so bad. Like salt I think they're going to film in New Jersey. Thing. Like this one. is my wheelhouse. <laughs> Well, it's, it's like Namibia, like with Fury Road. He has to hope that it doesn't <laughs> rain in Jersey for the next three years, and then he can film there. Uh, yeah. So, Mac, are you? Oh, ben, yeah. Actually, you speaking of Doctor uh, Dealgood, are this you Blackfinger? Are you Screw Loose? Yeah, I'm just looking at names from Thunderdome oh, right now. Yeah, I was just gonna say it's kind of weird that this movie filmed me and my friends <laughs> hanging out when sure. we, I, did, I had no it recollection. It filmed you and your friends as kids, yeah. and then it also filmed you as your friends as adults, <laughs> and then it sort of it flipped the order. It's weird. It's <laughs> like I have it's no boyhood, memory. but with Ben Hosley, essentially. People think of this film as being a uh, third Mad Max film, yeah. right? It's mm-hmm. it's the second Mad Max sequel. When in reality, the way it should be viewed is uh, George Miller's uh, Gus Van Sant psycho-esque take doing a shot-for-shot remake of Ben Hosley's home videos. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's shot-for-shot. Shot. I mean, it's, it's shot crazy. for shot. Yep, yep. That, that was like, tribe. that was me at summer camp. Warm tribe. Pretty this much. This is you at summer. Your, yeah. your summer camp was in a crash 747. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, in the desert. Waiting for the captain to show up. Yeah. The Jersey governor just has a bazooka. He shoots down airplanes. He's like, there's a summer camp over there if you can find it. 
What if Sully were the captain, though? What if they're just waiting for Sully? Oh man, that's a good point, right? So yeah, because their their god is a captain in, in Thunderdome. It's a quick Sully question would be before, the greatest of all gods. Before we can move on with this episode, how many souls were on board? Uh, one hundred fifty-five. He did eyeball it too. I, I do feel just they're based on the evidence we've they're seen, they're not going to make Taterboro. That one hundred fifty souls did not come out of that plane that day. That some some souls were lost along the way. You think souls were lost? I, I think you think wait, the, even though like their human bodies endured, their souls were lost by in a geese strike. Like, do you think like innocents died for a few of those they, passengers? They hit a gyrocopter uh, and it went down. I do think a couple of people. Oh, you're talking about the Thunderdome plan. I, I thought you were a Sully truther. <laughs> yeah, I was. To... No, I'm a Sully the movie truther, where my truth is that it's not especially good. Oh, <laughs> but uh, no, that I, is, I'm that is the, uh, uh, you're canceled. Yeah. Well, I one. think in every you episode, run for president. <laughs> this will this will get brought up if you ever try. <laughs> this audio will leak Shane uh-huh. Gillis style. <laughs> Listen, I'm just here trying to push boundaries. Yeah, you're pushing boundaries. <laughs> let me let me tell you, buddy, you missed. Okay. Oh oh oh, O'Reilly. You need parts? O'Reilly Auto Parts has parts. Need them fast? We've got fast. No matter what you need, we have thousands of professional parts people doing their part to make sure you have it. Product availability. Just one part that makes O'Reilly stand apart. The professional parts people. Oh, 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 O'Reilly. Auto Parts. With LinkedIn Jobs, we tap into a network of more than a billion professionals to help you find quality professionals quickly and easily for any role you need. Marketing wizards? Found them. Software engineers? Found. That project manager I could never seem to hire? And found. LinkedIn Jobs quickly matches your roles with candidates with the right skills and experience. In fact, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. Post your first job for free and get started at linkedin.com slash spoken. That's linkedin.com slash spoken. Terms and conditions apply. But with Pete Davidson potentially stepping down, maybe yeah. there's room for Shane Gillis to come right up. I love, uh, I Gale. love, I, I don't mean this backhandedly. I genuinely love Pete Davidson knowing that he is under a seven-year contract. Right. And just being like, yeah, I don't really like uh, being on the show. I wish they would fire me. Yeah. Yeah. It's the last king of Staten Island. He is. He is. He's the last. Yeah, he is basically begging to be fired. But also, no, they wait, seem no, he's to just only the... employ him just because they're worried about him. Like, <laughs> yeah. it's a weird dynamic in general. But also, then, what they have him on to do is essentially make fun of his... True, to make fun of himself or be, like, the third like, guy in a sketch who's yeah. like, hey, how you doing? Yeah. It's the last king of Scotland. <laughs> I think he's just the king of Scotland. He's uh, just the king of Staten <laughs> Island, and, king. of course, yes. When Judd Apatow uh, aspires to... Valhalla or whatever better version we have of uh, describing when a director shoots for Oscar bait. It can be the last king of Staten Island. But but isn't funny people him shooting for Valhalla, but it's interesting because he doesn't succeed? Like the whole value of that so. movie. He misses the Oscars so. and lands uh, on a, on a masterpiece. Exactly. Right. That's my take. That's See, fair. Uh, this is why we have to do him at I some know time. because yep. we, yes, yes, we because funny people is good. One of yeah. the great films of this century, I would go so far as to say. It's it's close for me. It's like a tweener. I gotta watch it again. It, I've also seen it like three times. If I, but it's been a few years. Yeah. If I ever interviewed Sandler, it would be like, yeah, Uncut Gems, great, great for the Jews. Uh, Punch Drunk Love, we stand Paul Thomas Anderson. No, that's his best performance. Let's talk about funny people for three hours. I think that is the Adam Sandler performance. Yeah. yeah. Right. It's just and like if you want to reckon with like him as a star, him as a yeah. uh, right, yeah. Best Rogan performance. I think it's an interesting question. Right? I don't think so. He is good. He's very good. Um, I, I, I think he's usually good. Yeah. Sure. Um, That's the thing with Rogan. Uh, I think he's, 
Uh, yeah, I think he's incredible in Knocked Up. Like, I, I, I think that's a little underrated. A movie that almost. I have watched uh, and while taking notes about five times in the last year. Uh, and for any reason. as, oh, as you had for any reason, oh, uh, as helpful, um, just because I'm really going through a Catherine Heigl phase right yeah. now. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, she but... changed her hair color. I saw it on Instagram, she's also and I was just like, uh, yeah. "She's very good in that." But also, that movie is more effective training for having a child than any of the twelve uh, pregnancy, uh, pregnancy or childhood books that I told my wife I read. Well, and Harold Ramis is no longer alive to give you in-person advice. Yeah, that I'm movie. Sad. I mean, this is, is all you have. he's so good in that movie. So um, this is the one that I feel like anyone would guess that I would say, but one of, I, I mean, long you know shot. what? He's really, really good at long not shot. fucking long. He's fine long, long shot. He's, come on. I mean, it's you don't like this movie, one? that one, but I love it. It's just an obvious David loves this movie. It's an obvious David loves this that movie. That Rogan's in. It's He's not even the star. Oh, Steve Jobs. Yeah. He's I th- so I think good he's in incredible. Yes. I think he's the best performance in that movie. I wonder if he it's like a six-way tie for was me. disappointed that he didn't get an Oscar for that. If he like thought that, that was something in the car. I don't think that he is someone who experiences that kind of disappointment. Yeah. But I do think there was certainly a moment where people were probably saying, like, hey, if this hits, you Before could be in the, the Oscar movie came race. Out, yeah. When it was like being seen by critics yeah. at festivals, then its first weekend, it does really well in limited release, and he was on everyone's five prediction list. And then the next weekend it goes wide and he drops off of everything. Can I tell yeah, you that- they blew that movie's release. That was the big problem. Oh, yeah. It's also, you know, they, they blew that movie's ending. Which uh, was, uh, no, they blew it. No, they did. And that's why you have to do Danny Boyle so I can. I've tweeted my take, but people need to hear <sighs> so, it. Uh, they need, I'm going to sing God, it. I'm so glad he was fired from Bond. But I do want to say <sighs> that of all the people in, in Hollywood and maybe in the world, I am most not only upset that I'm not close personal friends with Seth Rogen, but like, I feel like it's a cosmic injustice of some kind that I see him on screen. He speaks to me so clearly. I feel like, of course we would be, uh, I could be his like super neurotic, you know, up, uptight, strung. What's the word I'm looking for? I don't even know. High tightly strong. wound, high strung. Thank you. Sure, tightly wound. Uh, friend that he needs to balance out his chill group of funny improv stoners. Uh, and some reason God put us on opposite sides of this country uh, and, you, uh, uh, sad. and opposite sides of the economic spectrum you, and talent. You should say, because this is an audio medium, I want to let the listeners know you're not wearing it currently, but you very frequently wear your promotional the night before sweater. Like deep into the summer. Deep into the summer you I don't give a fuck. Yes. I just have to, it's, uh, yeah. it's my, one, my one emblem of Jewish pride. I, do I have a mezuzah on my door? No, I no, do not. No, but you wear the mezuzah on your heart. It's exactly right. Uh, the scene at the end of Longshot, which is, of course, a masterpiece, uh, no, when he not, becomes no, no. not only America's first mister, uh-huh. first first mister, yeah. but its first Jewish first mister, uh-huh. I cried. Yeah, it's interesting. Didn't even remember that scene. There is only, I, I like. I remember when he falls down the stairs. It's pretty funny. It's very funny. Pretty funny. Your I think that movie... Are those the boys? So good. Don't I... remember that line. <laughs> <laughs> So I watch movie. Longshot. It's on cable at all times. I, I don't have 18 hours to devote to that. The movie's long. <laughs> oh. It's not long enough. <laughs> it's definitely long it's enough. Long. Uh, there's only it's one. It's not even that bad. It's, it's okay. fine. It's, it's fine. Yeah. Graded on the curve because we get one romantic comedy a year. Right. Uh, th- there is one joke I, I guffawed at in that movie, and it's the most Griffin joke, which is also at the very end of that movie when he reveals that uh, Todd McFarlane painted yes. his portrait. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's funny. That, that's funny. There's funny jokes, and, and yeah. I like both of their energies. I just like, it's like barely a movie. So Mad Max Beyond Thunderdome, which I, I feel like I had seen most of on TV, but had never really like sat down intentionally watched from beginning to end. Same. Fair enough. Immediately. Uh, me too, uh, 100% yes. actually, yeah. Immediately... Like, you know, from the first visual, because one thing this movie does very well 
that I think all the other Mad Max films should do. Although, no, I'm sorry, Fury Road does this? No, it doesn't. What? You have to say what it is. Opening credits where you list everyone's names and their characters. Fury Road does that in the, in the closing in the credits, right. and I do love it when it does it's that. It's the only yes. way that movie could have blown minds even faster than right. it does. That's true. Because the cast names in, the character names in yes. Fury Road are... They're even better right. than this one. I mean, he only if tops himself. If it's possible, yes. yes. But this, yes, it like, it but this starts opens out incredibly with, yes, strong. You know, like... Right. Um, Tina the Turner one? as anti-entity no, or whatever. There's one that fucking blew my mind. Oh, Angry Anderson as Iron Bar. <laughs> Robert Grubb as Pig Killer. Yeah, that was a good killer. Start a movie stronger. And the funniest, when you watch the movie, you're like, oh, Pig Killer's sort of a sympathetic character. Well, no, like, did, did you know that Pig Killer's He's a vegan? He's kind of a good guy. Yeah. He's a he, vegan. He's a vegan. Yeah. Like IRL or in the movie? <laughs> in the movie. Yeah. Uh, he's a terrific guy. But once the the actual visuals start in this movie, uh, it immediately feels like this movie is the one Mad Max film filtered through uh, the Amblin sensibility. Mm. Mm. Although, somebody takes Swirlin. I, I was watching the credits for this movie. Of sure. course, my first thought was, uh, ooh, maybe maybe this is actually a masterpiece. <laughs> maybe this is a great film and the world has just slept on it for 30 years and now we are going to bring it to justice. Uh, and this is before there had been a single shot in the film just looking at the character names, of course, which are all deserving of a place in a museum somewhere. Um but, uh, man, the last time I was here was for Hell's Moving Castle, mm-hmm. and which I picked because I was like, there's a Miyazaki film. I don't feel strongly yeah, one way or the other. Yeah, you picked it because you wanted something you weren't going to do. And then I, I was thinking to myself afterwards, I was like, you know, the next time I go on that show, I want to pick a movie that is near and dear to my heart. And so when, when Sims was like, you want to do Thunderdome, a movie that I have seen 20 minutes of a, on cable television <laughs> when I was pretending to be sick from school when I was 10, yeah. I was like, oh, hell yes, yeah. let's ride and die in the Thunderdome. Um, and so that's where my head was at watching this movie. Uh, the Amblin energy is strong with this one, but I do, and maybe we should just circle back to this later. Sure. But for me, I feel like the hottest take I've got on this, the most flattering thing I have to say about this movie is that I don't know if I've ever seen a live action film that has this big Studio Ghibli energy. Yeah, it has real cartoon world energy. You're, yes. Yeah, it's a fair point. It has the same sort of spare uh, you know, beyond the setting of it, but yeah. the same sort of like spare aesthetic of Nausicaa, Valley of the Wind. It has the same approach to sound design, um, which it borrows from a lot of like uh, wuxia films mm-hmm. of, the, of the time. Um, it, it just, it really has that energy that I think even when it leans into Goonies territory yeah. right. and becomes super ambliny, it still feels the anarchy of it all and just like the the sort of, the just the whole the spirit of it feels to me even more in common with uh, Ghibli. It is also the it most— It spends more time in, in like, a town, correct. you know, than the other Mad Maxes, so that helps, too. It's the film that has the longest stretch without action sequences, you know, in, in a way that's kind of unusual for a Mad Max film. And tied to that, I think it is the most openly emotional Mad Max film. Yes. But it is emotional in a film about emotionally reserved characters which feels very Ghibli adjacent mm. where the, the filmmaking is emotional and the characters are not openly. Something so. too about like when it was made, mm-hmm. the aesthetic of sax is great. Yeah. The Anytime you get sax. like yeah. a sexy sax. Yeah. It just really just makes it better. Also this very the, 80s. It is yeah. the jazziest the of the Mad Max Jar score, well. right. right? Rather than Brian May's weird sort of like but then, the yeah, and then pipe clanks too are great. <laughs> the pipe clanking in the first half of this movie rules. It's yeah. so good. Yeah. Going in, 
I was like, I know what the take on this movie is, the sort of general take, which is like first 45 minutes, pretty fantastic. The kids kind of suck. The end's pretty cool. Yeah. And then I watched the movie and I was like, I guess that's kind of how I feel. Yeah, like, but, I was sort of annoyed that I didn't have, like, I wasn't agreed. like, oh my God. I, like, I was looking for some radical interpretation. That having been said. I mean, it's good. That, that's you're, It right. has a Thunderdome. That's, that take is judging it against the three other Mad Max movies, right. which fucking rip. None of which have Thunderdomes, though. Well, that's the thing. And Fury it's, Road so really it's like, fucking dropped the a, ball. I'm actually going to change my rating to one star. What movies would be best improved by having a Thunderdome? Like, Bomb even show. in recent history, Bomb like <laughs> Green Book with a Thunderdome. That'd be good. That'd be great. Roger fucking Ailes does look more like a wasteland character than a real human being in Bombshell. That's true. <laughs> if yes. you put, like, a yeah, metal, like, called, claw yeah, right. on him. <laughs> He was I mean, called, he like, could fight in thunder. Yeah, I've like been reading. I was Lord reading some interviews Pig or whatever. It'd be like, great, yeah, yeah, makes sense. I was reading some interviews uh, with George Miller, and he mentions Rupert Murdoch in all of them because mm. Murdoch and his media empire That's was true. so yeah. crucial sure. to what he was doing. Yeah, and you know, Roger Ailes and Rupert, Mur- Rupert Murdoch are, I guess, technically different people, but they're kind but of a master <laughs> blaster. <laughs> they're a master blaster. They're in a unit. They are Cinema's a bit of a master blaster story. thing. Yeah. Um, and it was it Malcolm McDowell played Murdoch in yes in in Bombshell in Bombshell. Because he, there's some Murdoch is also in the loudest voice, which I watched every episode of wow. for reasons I cannot begin to fathom. Wow! And he's a better character in that. I feel like in Bob Shelley. But who plays anything. him? You don't remember? It, it was more. Oh, fuck! I have to look it up. See, now. I think uh, McDowell's really good in Bombshell. I think that's when's one of the bad? better performances. Yeah, he's is not, that a fair when he he's bad? incapable I, of I being bad? I think that's bad. a pretty fair when he's even when's though he, he bad, makes yeah. like tons of crap. Like yeah. you know, like I feel like you could probably get Malcolm McDowell for your movie with so ease. <laughs> yeah. Told you about like my dad when I was growing up knew someone who knew Malcolm McDowell, and my dad who like did not understand just culture in general, mm. but certainly movies, like learned that I was starting to get into movies and thought it would be cool to have Malcolm McDowell who starred in Clockwork Orange, sure. the film when I was 10 years old, I was not intimately familiar with mm-hmm. and had Malcolm McDowell call me on the phone and I picked up the phone at home uh, and the, the voice on the other end just goes, hello, Droogs. And I was like, hello. <laughs> What? He was, was speaking like, to you in references yeah. to his No, own that was his intro career? as if like someone had cajoled him into calling. Right. He's like, oh, we know this kid. He's a huge movie fan. Right. He's gonna flip his mind when you call him. And he was just like, like hello, Drew's. And I was like, hi? <laughs> Who is this? But he he great. treated it as if it was like he's Alan Rickman in Galaxy's Quest finally like deigning to say by Grabthar's hammer. <laughs> right, right. Exactly. And I was just like, I, I don't know who you are or what you're talking about, but I remember watching that movie like seven years later and being like, oh, oh, can I call him back? <laughs> but sounds like he was pretty good on that phone call. I mean, this supports David's thesis that he's never bad. He's never bad. He's never bad. And it was so it, I mean, it just is very, uh, very kind of him but and mortifying to me. Even mm. when he's of course, that literally made him do that. phoning it in, he, he never phones phoning it in. in. No, he, yeah. he brought it. I yeah. was Simon scared in ways I didn't understand. McBurney. Oh. And he was good. Because there's a cru- the crucial scene yeah. in the loudest voice, which I watch every episode of on I Showtime, uh, is when Ailes has been, you know, uh, slamming Obama on Fox News. Mm. Right? He's been going hard, yeah. and then he's told like this isn't cool because he's gonna win. Like Murdoch sort of comes down and is like, you can't be that mean. And Ailes is like, oh, I can do what I want. He like eats a whole birthday cake, <laughs> which is like shit that he does in that show. That show sure. is insane. And then he's like supposed to meet Obama. Uh-huh. And then instead, like he comes into a room and Murdoch's like, I'm going to go meet Obama and you go home. 
And like that's when like the power begins to shift. Wow. It's a good wow. scene. Mm-hmm. And then Russell Crowe eats like four more birthday cakes. And wow. yeah. anyway, there's I think- so many scenes of him eating birthday cake in that show. <laughs> I'm not joking. <laughs> tastes it tastes delicious. Yeah. I mean, I don't blame him. Does he fold it, uh, Tony Lip style? No, it's just like it's always like Seth MacFarlane is like, "Hey, this is what's going on, boss," and he's like, "Oh, ah. <laughs> like, like, it's always wow. somebody's birthday." Yeah, yeah. Um, but I do feel like he was the talking Rupert about Murdoch type, yeah, or the the, Rob, yes. the, the yes. Roger Ailes type was very much on his mind, although. Um, you know, he got a lot of money to make these documentary series from the Murdoch Empire and was actually mm. complimentary about how hands-off they were. Sure. Um, but I mean, it's certainly, it? like, think when he's talking about, like, future tyrants. Right. Uh, sure. ways he loves, right, about. like, tycoon-type characters in yes. the Med. Like, these big, corpulent, or yes. the sort of t- uh, Tina Turner-type, right? right? Like, kind of, like, imperious, like, dictator-types. Right. He loves them. Imperator Tina. Imperator, Imperator, Imperator Tina. Tina. Um, but you know that is the Murdoch reputation, like The Simpsons, right? Where he's like, "I don't care, I don't wash that shit. You right. know, do whatever you want. I'm yeah. rich." They just make fun of him all I'm the so time. So evil yeah. doesn't care. Um, it, I mean, the the couple important things for context in this movie. Uh, one, uh, as you sort of alluded to, or like uh, at this point, Kennedy Miller has become like a pretty big operation. They're doing a lot of stuff in Australia, mostly in TV. But a lot of miniseries, a lot of documentaries. Mm-hmm. They're supporting a lot of filmmakers. Uh, Philip Noyce is going through their system. That's right. And will soon cross uh, over to America. Yeah, uh, there's um, a very cool miniseries, cool sounding miniseries called Bodyline, starring a young Hugo Weaving mm-hmm. about a famous Australian cricket drama from the 30s. Mm-hmm. Sounds kind of cool. A lot of the the Australian uh, film industry luminaries of the 80s who eventually make their way over to Hollywood are sort of being given real shots through the Kennedy Miller operation. And it's a lot of autonomy, a lot of creative integrity, uh, and, and that these two guys are by all accounts real uh, mensches, real supportive, want to uh, raise the tide for all in the Australian film industry. And then the second thing that happens is Byron Kennedy dies, who is very much George Miller's real partner in these first three films and in building this little cottage industry they yes. have. And, uh, you know, George Miller was always very, very um, generous and sort of saying, like, we are 50-50 partners. The fact that I'm the director and he's the producer ostensibly was like a coin toss. We have both have as much say in this movie and this world building and all of this. And so when Byron Kennedy dies, he's at the standstill where he's like, do I cancel the movie or do I force myself to make the movie in order to honor this guy? And he decides to go through with it because he feels like it's the best way to pay tribute to uh, Byron Kennedy. Mm. But he also brings on a co-director yeah. uh, whose name is George Ogilvy. Ogilvy. George Ogilvy, who was uh, a, a man who had done a miniseries for Kennedy Miller. Yeah, and he, he did Bodyline, the great cricket drama oh, I was just talking about oh. with Hugo Weaving. And other people too, probably, but I don't know no, who they it are. It was just Hugo it's one cast playing every um, role, Tom Noonan style and Anomalisa. Right, and he does eventually go on to make a couple more Australian movies and some more TV movies and so on and so forth. But he's yeah. not. Uh, he never quite got beyond Thunderdome. No, I'd say. no, they left he, him at Thunderdome. He did not get beyond Thunderdome. Two um, directors enter, one director leaves. Miller says, I asked my friend George Ogilvy, who was working on the miniseries, could you come and help me? But I don't remember the experience because I was doing it just to. Dot, 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 you know I was grieving. 
Right. So he very much talks about this movie as like, I... I was in a haze, I felt like yeah. I needed to do it to work through my grief, and instead I, I barely remember what was going on. Imagine if your grieving process involved outfitting Tina Turner into a post-apocalyptic like well, <laughs> right. town mayor. Right, with a crossbow. <laughs> with a crossbow. Yeah. It is weird, because this movie is fully formed. Like, it's not like you watch this movie and you're you? like, what a mess. But, but I mean, because... Uh, I think Kennedy had been there for all of that ideation. Sure. You know, everything had sort of been developed, at least on a conceptual stage, that then all that needed to be done was to take it to the finish line. Miller and Kennedy were people who prepped extensively and in great detail that I think he was bringing on Ogilvy to help, like, deal with a lot of the actual practical day-to-day stuff that he was uh, too sad to deal with. Well, the the what they'll tell you on – IMDb mm-hmm. trivia, which is where I, I, especially when writing reviews, get most of my information that I need, um, has never failed me in the past, mm-hmm. is that Ogilvy shot uh, all of the dramatic scenes where uh-huh. Miller did all the action. And I think that that breakup is probably, A, inaccurate, but B, too clean. I okay. um, I don't think it really works like that. Right. I, I think that's also the kind of thing that fans want to say to make sense yeah, of the yeah. movie because don't, they don't like the Is that confirmed at much. all? Like, is there any... I, I didn't dig too deep into it, but not I'm, that I found. But I also, I there's like to, such... Yeah. There's such uh, so much of George Miller's DNA, I, yeah. even in the dramatic scenes, that either Ogilvy did an immaculate job right. of sort of getting that vibe, or that's just simply not the case. I mean, uh, once yeah. again, it, you know, it is uh, he's a guy who preps so extensively that it's not like if someone's following the plans that he laid out, they're going to remove his DNA from the equation. Something like the the two stop motion Wes Anderson movies, where especially for Fantastic Mr. Fox, by all accounts, he was not there. He was not animating. Uh, or directing the animators or any of those things. He was mostly directing that movie over Skype, but he had written it and he had storyboarded extensively and he gave them very clear rules to how his visual language works and how it doesn't, what performances he wants. But I think George Miller was far more hands-on than that. When I read interviews with him about this, and he's reluctant to talk about it, I think just because it was so emotionally painful, it doesn't sound like, oh, he wasn't on set for a lot of it and let this other guy carry entire scenes it sounds like he was on set but he wasn't totally there mentally he just didn't have the emotional bandwidth to do it all yes um and needed some support Uh, this imdb trivia page is actually kind of fun i mean such as quote tina turner had to shave her head for the wig to fit properly she reportedly had no problem with that (laughs) that's the end of that little story like that (laughs) just a little story they were asked to do this they said yes they said okay we talk about a tina turner (laughs) has maybe pound for pound Cinema's greatest filmography. Okay, I mean, her, let's run through her, them. Yeah. All right, so she did. She appeared as herself in a number of different movies, like Gimme Shelter, no, which I don't that. really forget think are worth that. mentioning. Her her first movie where she's playing a character is in Tommy. Oh, she's the acid she queen. The yes. acid queen. Acid queen. Number one role on your resume. Also, just sounds like a Mad Max character. Yeah. Like you know, it's like who are you playing in Thunderdome? The acid queen. Then, oh, yes, yeah, sure, from sure. there, she doesn't want to go down. The only right. way to keep the momentum going is, of course, to continue playing herself. Uh-huh. The only character right. on par with the acid queen. Then the Beatles come and knocking in 1978, and they ask her to play one of the guests at Heartland in Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club right. Band. The, the movie where the Bee Gees play the Beatles. Great. Right. Right. Uh, so the Bee Gees and the Beatles together, arm in arm, showed up at her door sure. and asked her to be in this movie, and she reluctantly said yes. Goes back to herself for a Chuck Berry thing where she is in concert with Chuck Berry is then Auntie Entity uh-huh. in Mad Max Thunderdome realizes once uh, more uh, I'm sorry they actually went beyond Thunderdome yeah. just FYI they went straight through it and far beyond 
My apologies. <laughs> um, then I'll spin the wheel of uh, forgiveness. Do you want to hear all of the uh, <laughs> outcomes on that wheel? Not at this very all moment. Right, fine. But then uh, she is like, okay, Help I think I've put a documentary. Uh-huh. Yeah. Put, my, put my stamp on this medium and then is called back into service one last time uh, for Last Action Hero where she wow, plays right. the mayor. That's right. right. Her entire filmography of fictional characters are the Acid Queen. <laughs> I'm not really into Count Sergeant It's really Acid Queen, Antinity, Antinity, and and the mayor. So she's never played a character with a proper name. (laughs) And she's never played a a character who didn't have some authority. A ruler over some sort of fictional town, usually a wasteland. Right. Either elected, (laughs) or through birthright, or through violence. Through force, Has ascended to the top. Yeah. Wow. Um, Badass. What was I going to say? Oh, oh, yeah. So here are the options on the wheel. Yeah. Death. Mm. Sure. You don't want that one. Hard labor doesn't no. seem fun. Mm-mm. Not fun to watch. Gulag, which is sort of similar to hard labor, but yeah. whatever. Uh, Auntie's Choice. Mm. Would have loved to see that one Spoiler, play out. It's the gulag. <laughs> <laughs> Spin again. Oh, that, now, you always have to have that on a wheel or magic eight ball. Yeah. <laughs> it's fun because it just ramps up tension. Forfeit goods, which is actually, that seems like pretty mild. That's the best one to take. That's right. sort of I mean, like getting a whammy. He has no yeah. goods at that. I mean, he's there to get goods. So yeah. he's, got yeah, he's got nothing to forfeit. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Underworld. <laughs> you have to watch uh, the, uh, the entire Len Wiseman series. The entire series. Len yeah. Wiseman series, yeah. It's tough. I take Gulag personally. Amputation. Uh-huh. Life imprisonment. And then acquittal uh, is well, on there. So, you know. So there's a clear... Winner. There's one that is unquestionably. Right, of course, Underworld. <laughs> I just feel like there should be a uh, a good thing that isn't just the removal of a bad thing. Oh, you're saying like acquittal isn't enough. There should be one where you make a profit. Yeah. And uh, you should get, yeah, exactly. And right. uh, also. Gaining of goods you want. I worry about what the prison system is like in the wasteland and also why their, their need for prison. I mean, everyone is. Uh, thieving murderer. So let's not talk around this. The Wasteland could use prison reform, it right? Could, it it could. feels like it could use bottom-up prison reform. There's uh, there's a new deal required in the way. You know what I mean? Yeah. I just feel like there's a lot of uh, wealth that could be redistributed here. A thousand percent. Um, a real, I do like their, their pig use. fart energy system. That's pretty good. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like that, they seem to have sorted out. Methane gas. And I would say, yeah. and you know, Master Blaster, they're, they're getting a lot done. Totally. So that's and Can helpful. I say it? Master Blaster. An absolute unit. MVP, right? <laughs> yeah. uh, cinema's greatest love story. Yes. My favorite kind of character. Yeah, and, and probably the biggest of the Mad Max big guys. Definitely. The best of the Mad Max big guys. But when you got a big brawn and uh-huh. then you got a little smart. This is your number and one they're favorite. together, then. they're yeah. a package deal. Yes. It's always great. Right, like Alugashu. Yep. yep. Original character of mine from years ago when we were still just doing Star Wars. Yeah. I uh, said... That I wanted to have a character named Alagashu who's right. giant, and then he had a little head growing out of his shoulder mm-hmm, sure. that whispered in his ear. It was sure. the yeah. smart one. And Alagashu is still canon within Blank Check Legends. Yes. Yes. Let's just make it clear. Yeah. Coming to Hulu. Coming to Hulu. Is he a playable character on the Blank Check mobile game? He oh, is. God. Okay, good. That would be so cool. God. Talk about a way of uh, fleecing people from their money. I would give you like $40 a day just buying packs of Alugashu, Alugashu energy I would, for the raid. I was very surprised. You're you're currently playing a Star Wars mobile game, are oh, you? Oh, no, not? it's gotten worse, Griffin. Oh, is it a Marvel mobile game? It's both. 
Oh, I you have, got I into have, the Marvel I have one? supplemented my Star Wars Galaxy of Heroes addiction with Marvel Strike Force. Wow. Uh, I'm such an easy mark for this. As like an, a, a, I tried that one. A gambling just, addict who yeah. doesn't have access to gambling. Yeah. This is really the next best thing oh, scratching That's the why edge. I play Disney much. You blitz. Right. You're uh, still on that one? Is that your boy? <laughs> yeah, I'm yeah. still on that one. I'm playing a game called Piffle. <laughs> very into piffle. Okay. I tried you the uh, Disney Battler, like the RPG oh, Battler, yeah, I'm not crazy and about it that. sucks. Yeah, it's it's, it's also garbage. and the DC one is also very bad. But the Disney one, it's like it's really meant for young children who have their parents' credit cards. Sure. And you can't control the characters during battle. Uh-huh. And so it's just like Olaf, go yeah, fight, cats. and uh, watching <laughs> Olaf throw his own body at people. Yeah. It's not. I I tried it, and it wasn't even fun playing as Ralph. Like you're not even getting That's joy just, out of you wrecking people. Isn't he like up. one of the default characters they yeah. give you when you start? Yeah, I feel I just like you should have to earn Ralph. Uh, well, yes. But it also tells you how bad the game is if Ralph is only set as a default. Yeah. Like he's not more powerful than, you know, fucking Sebastian. Anyway, those things are, uh, are a menace. But uh, uh, Master Blaster. Yeah. Well, here's the thing I want to say. I I agree that, like, I you know, we all came to this movie going like, oh, man, I'd love to come in here with a take on why this film's a secret masterpiece. Yeah. It is not bad in any way. It also, in pretty much any other franchise, would probably be the best movie. Like, the yeah. Mad Max bar is so high and the films are so inventive that this film pales in comparison because it's a little more rote. But if any other franchise had a movie that was this bug nuts, you'd be like, oh, that's the interesting one. And also the action in this movie is like next level fantastic. It's yeah. har- I don't know. I feel – Are you going to diss the action? No, I'm not okay. going to disc, diss, diss – let's try it again. Yep. Uh, just throwing more consonants at the end of this word that doesn't need it. Uh, the man-on-man fight scene action mm-hmm. in this movie, which I think, if anything, I mean, you'll see about how George Miller talks a lot about borrowing from Buster Keaton. But for me, again, to go back to sort of uh, the Kung Fu movies that were being made at the time as real wuxia energy. Yeah. Again, it, for me, it's the sound. It's also the way they use the acrobatics, uh, the way they use in the Thunderdome where you can't just, I think a common misconception about Thunderdomes everywhere is, of course, that people are just uh, not suspended on right. wires and are just free to run at each other. But right. no, a Thunderdome is not just a geodesic dome which has hordes of Streets of Rage style uh, <laughs> extras on the side cheering, throwing you uh, full turkeys to consume to re- regain yeah, your health. Ben would make a good Streets of Rage movie. Yes, he would. Oh, for sure. I love that Shredded game. jeans. <laughs> oh my God, they're so, the jeans are so shredded. Oh, they've got to be. Uh, and the shirts. But yeah, yeah, you yeah. need you need the the harnesses. Yeah, and you got to utilize the whole rules. space. Oh, absolutely! Well, it's like multi dimensional fighting. Like he's adding different axes. Right. I mean, I think Ebert's review. Axes. He literally was like, "I've never seen an action." Th- this sequence is like this he before. gave it four right. out of four stars and placed it as one of his ten best films of 1985. And his line is, uh, uh, "The Thunderdome itself is the first really original movie idea about how to stage a fight since we got the first karate movies." Would you say that the Thunderdome is almost like a character in this movie? Definitely. Um, it's like the fifth character. Yeah, I think it was it's in it was, the title. I think New York Film Critics gave it uh, Best Supporting Actor that year. Auntie Max, Andy, Master Andy. Blaster, Thunderdome. Um, what about Jebediah, though? Jebediah, who— or Jedediah. Jedediah, played by Bruce Spence, who's the gyrocaptor pilot and now is the airplane pilot. I know. They were, like, apparently literally just trying to cast the role, and they were like, why don't we just hire him again? The same guy. And he was like, can I—am I playing the same character? And they were like— no, but like, yeah. <laughs> but it's like it's like a toe cutter. No, and I know, I know. Morton Joe. Yeah, 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 I love that he just reuses certain people. It's like you have the right energy for this. You work well in this kind of vehicle. 
it's hard to make movies out in the middle of the desert. If there's someone you can get along with who's going to do the job, why not bring them back? But I do, I did want to say that the the vehicular carnage mm-hmm. at the end of this movie, it is hard now in retrospect for it not to feel like it's a dry run for what he was going yes. to do later. Um, which I guess you could say about really all the car chases in, in this uh, trilogy here. But this one in particular feels like, other than the train, which yeah. maybe they can bring back in some way. Train uh, and the, you know, There's no flying in, in uh, Fury Road. Of course you would but, say that, David. You love trains. I love trains. But, but there is no flying in Fury Road, right? No. 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 The most you've got is sort of acrobatics. Doesn't the train feel very Indiana Jonesy to you guys? Yes. Where it's like... Yeah. All, all yeah. of this feels Spielberg-y. Right. Not in a mad way. No, no, no. Not, okay. not a, we like in, Maybe in a mad way. Hey, well... Also, any train in any context feels Indiana Jonesy to me, or yeah. needs to like I'll be on the Metro North, and I'm like Indiana Jonesy, but needs more so. Sure, and obviously, uh, you know, very uh, Buster Keaton generally. Yeah, it's generally generally. General. Yeah, um, but but it does it has the Spielberg thing of uh, rather than the usual Mad Max thing of just things intensifying, building, building, heightening. It's like we're on one track. You're trying to problem solve this thing. It's that Indiana Jones, like, every action scene is kind of a puzzle that he has to solve how to not die mm-hmm. rather than it just being like survival, you know, just like outwit, outlast, outplay. Right. Yeah. Well, the Indiana Jones movies are directed by a man named Steven Spielberg. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that's interesting about him is that he understands that an action sequence can actually be a narrative unto itself and sure. further the story yeah. uh, and doesn't just have to be fucking shit thrown at your face to uh, numb you into submission. Right. Uh, and that is uh, something that not all filmmakers implicitly understand. No, Road Warrior also feels a little bit like a dry run for Fury Road, but Road Warrior is so committed to just the fucking car chases. It Like Fury Road is like 90% just high octane, high speed. And I wonder if like the brokenness of this story and sort of its lump and misshapen quality where the two halves of it feel so different from one another was part of what made him want to do something so streamlined for for the next one. I think so, yeah. I mean, because right, for a very long time he said, I, I wasn't going to come back to it. And then Fury Road, he claims, came to him in a fever dream on an airplane. And it was just like, I want to make a movie that's just that. You know what I think it was? I think it's that he said, because he said in an interview on the, Ann Bilson's blog. Mm-hmm. So I read this very long uh, interview that she had did and for Time Out magazine. And then it was the interview she wrote for Time Out was canceled because as soon as it was about to go to publish, Orson Welles died of a heart attack and they just scuttled all that footage Wow! Uh, for Orson Welles tributes like the dude who made Citizen Kane dead. Time Out. Also, here's where you should drink tonight in London. Uh, but the uh, um, the thing that I read in that interview is he was like, they're asking about the music and he's like, you know, I just couldn't figure out a way to get rock music in Mad Max, and I don't think I ever will. I stopped at jazz. And then, uh, yeah, jazz jazz is one thing. Jazz yeah. is no problem. But rock, impossible. And then one day he you was like a man strapped to the front of a truck yeah. with his guitar on fire. And, and he is the most thunderdome character because he's sure. got sort of a bungee cord oh, thing yeah. going yes. on the Doof Warrior. Right. You know? But there is, right, there's that thing of this movie felt like a, they were on a roll. Why not continue it? B, Road Warrior had been such a breakout success in the U.S. in a way that the first one wasn't. So there was like Warner Brothers more actively, I think, supporting and asking for another Mad Max film. And Mel Gibson's star was growing independently. After That's this, right. he does Lethal Weapon and then explodes and then, you know, just gets bigger and bigger and bigger until he uh, completely crashes into the side of a wall. Um, but right. But in between Mad Max 2 and this, he had made The Year of Living Dangerously, which is sort of 
No, Gallipoli is pre-Mad Max 2. Oh, That's okay. Same year, I believe. Gotcha. Um, but you're, I feel like Year of Living Dangerously is like, this is a fucking Hollywood bulletproof, so handsome leading man. Right. Like, that performance might be his best performance. Mm. He's so phenomenally handsome in that movie. Mm-hmm. I'm, I know that Mel Gibson is... Is has an ugly soul <laughs> and is is not the greatest person in the world. Wait, so did Mel Gibson get canceled? <laughs> uh, that he has been canceled thrice over. And Listen, seems we have to, to separate know. the hot from the but the hotness. Uh, the I art, do I do feel like the, the, the year of living dangerously is kind of that movie where Hollywood is like, oh, uh, maybe we should give this guy a call, right? Well, and you yeah. can even tell that. Like, he's excellent in the first and second films, but in this one he shows up and just has the energy of, I have completely figured out how to be a movie star. Yeah, he but, has a little more uh, to do as well. I don't even, yeah. that's not even a good or bad thing. But the but, driving you know, force behind this yeah. movie sort of hinges on- A little more of a Hollywood arc, right? You know? Sure. Yeah. But it sort of hinges on the perception of his morality, it, 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 on the idea of- Mel Gibson emanating a sort of intrinsic goodness. Like that is at the root of this movie in a way that it wasn't in the two previous films Uh because this is a story, George Miller's described it as a coming out story of his own, like the character's own uh, innate sense of empathy for other human beings that he once upon a time was a DC human being who had a family who we loved, who we meet in the first movie. Um, and then after things went to shit, even further than they already had, convinced himself that survivalism was the only way to get by, just a ruthlessness, uh, look out for himself and no one else. And you see that in The Road Warrior, where he is mostly doing things to avoid his own murder. And then in, like sometimes realizes that helping other people might be advantageous to mm-hmm. his own wants. But this is the first movie where he, when he's with the kitties in the, in the, in the second half of the movie um, and things go real Peter Pan real fast, uh, that he is doing something not only for his ad- advantage, but also he sees a sort of glimmer of opportunity and hope there, a chance to rebuild, and is sort of emerging into that goodness. And the whole movie, I think, is made possible at that time because the world is starting to get a sense that this is our Tom Cruise now, you know, pre-Tom Cruise. Right. Like, this is a guy who has a good soul and all of the the barbarousness of the wasteland is sort of grafted on top of that. And it's just so funny uh, seeing that, that that didn't quite pan out. Sure, but it is a movie that has the sort of meta energy of, A, we have to acknowledge that this character has now become an icon. The mm, audiences are going to sure. be excited when Max shows up on screen again. So you kind of want the universe to reflect that in some way. That characters are more terrified of him and other characters look up to him more, think he's more powerful and capable of saving them. And secondly, that this guy is now a movie star. He's minted. It's unquestionable. This guy's on the track. So you need to give him a little bit more of like a classical hero's journey down to this having the The kids, the the real refusal of the call beat that the other movies don't really do. They just have him kind of fight against saving at every moment. He's always conflicted in any moment how much he wants to help. This movie has the like, I'm going to hear your story. I'm going to walk away. You're going to win me back. I'm going to go all in. It's great when the refusal of the call comes uh, 80 minutes into a film. (laughs) You know, know you're really cooking (laughs) with gas then. Right, because he actually answers Tina Turner's yes, call, right? right? And then he's annoyed that it, she was just kind of like using him and he's he answers like, All right, like a no spam more calls. phone call. Ring, yeah, ring exactly. Thunderdome? Right. Yeah. Yes, ma'am. I yes. want to point out just the movies, apart from Year of Living Dangerously, that he had done, none of them hit, mm-hmm. but it is the first sign of him making a murder. He made a movie called, well, he made The Bounty uh-huh. with Anthony Hopkins, which was a bomb, uh-huh. but was like a big costume drama, right? okay. you know, you know, The Bounty remake. Then he made The River, which mm. I've never seen, no. with Sissy Spacek and Scott Glenn. That's a Mark Rydell movie. 
which is like Bruce an American movie. <laughs> and he made something called Mrs. Soffel. I have never heard of it, wow. but it's directed by Jillian Armstrong. Okay. Stars Diane Keaton wow. and him. Wow. He could have been a good like, look young at this Bruce. movie. I feel like back in the day. What a is young this Bruce? movie? Like he could have played in the River movie. Oh, which, oh, oh sure. Springsteen. Like yeah, because he, he had uh, that sort of like high tufty hair. And, yeah. yeah, he could have pulled it off. I mean, he's, look, he's just one of, he's, and Lethal Weapon is the one that figures it out, but like, his eyes are incredible and he really does seem like a really scary person. Speaking of his hair, he has, I think, maybe the exact same wig that he later busts out for Braveheart. Like, this feels oh, it's like a similar, a for that. Right, it's like a 90s version of a period adventure haircut. Yeah, I mean, the 80s, like this modeled, right. uh, Long mane, sort of high, and it's a mullet. Yeah, and yeah, someone he was just reading about, uh, you know, Robert the Bruce and William Wallace, and was like, kind of looked hot in that wig. Let's uh, let's win some Oscars. George Miller has talked about the like the innate sort of insanity of Mel Gibson, and that being the main thing that drew him to him in auditions. That I think the better he became as a movie star, the more he both figured out how to use it. And also know how to not let it overwhelm every other bit of energy he had. I mean, when he's really like cooking as a leading man, it is that thing where just like he has crazy eyes all the time, but he's able to project other energy in addition to that. And it is that way that like a lot of the best actors are angry. You know, there's some sort of like fiery energy there. That is just innately watchable, and if they're able to layer things on top of that, then they're able to play multiple different shades and colors. Do you think this is what's holding you back as an actor? Like, I look at you I'm now. Furious. You're I'm wearing such an a angry t-shirt person. that has one of the uh, little Aliens guys from Toy Story. Yeah. and yeah. you're just not like the portrait of anger that I, would I know. expect from an up-and-coming leading man. I'll tell you though, the single biggest note I got on season one of The Tick was that I was playing every single scene too angry. Mm. Uh, and I think that performance is too angry, and that was them cutting it down and trying to use only the takes where I was the least angry. I think I got it better the second season, but I think that's also uh, – it's more compelling to be angry if you look like Mel Gibson or Gene Hackman than if you look like Griffin Newman, maybe. Mm. Maybe. This is a, a thesis I'm working on. Post this, mm-hmm. Lethal Weapon. Yes. Tequila Sunrise. Mm-hmm. Lethal Weapon 2. Right, and then Lethal Weapon 2 is just – Explosion. Right. Bird on a Wire. Air America, which was kind of a hit at the time. Yeah. Uh, with Downey. Forever Young. Hamlet. Right. Which is him going serious, not really being respected for it, no. but like a pretty solid movie, you like read, a solid Shakespeare drama. You read you know, the costume. reviews at the time, and it he, it is treated as if it were Channing Tatum announcing that 100%, he was going to do yes. Hamlet. Which is... Unfair considering the Australian half of his career. That's what's weird. You know, it's it's fair enough considering in his American movies he was mostly like it's an action star. Also unfair considering that Channing Tatum's breakthrough role was in She's the Man, which is in itself a Shakespeare well, adaptation. Well, that's a fair point. Well, that's and we should go and point, point that out to the 1990 reviewers because okay, they would they would love it. hearing yeah. all of that. But you're right; and it, it would make sense to them. It is weird that he was dismissed that much and mocked that much playing. When it's Hamlet. like this guy was in you know Peter Weir he movies, did two and Peter stuff, Weir you know, whatever, it's like one Oscars, and then Forever Young and Lethal Weapon three, and then he. Does Man Without a Face, his yep. directorial debut, Maverick, Braveheart. I mean, his 90s are just like, all of them are hits, pretty much. Um, Even the ones that haven't aged well, you're like, all of these did well. The opening shot of this movie is, a- after the awesome opening credits, uh, set to a Tina Turner song, 
is just George Miller immediately showing off that he has big studio money now. That he's yeah, got Warner Brothers that, money. It's so cool. The helicopter know, shot. The helicopter shot's amazing. Where you just and you're stay. like, is this Mars? Like, right. what is this and landscape? And it's so cool that it's revealed to be a subjective shot. It's not yes. just like right. That we're actually right. in a plane. You're right. the POV yeah, yeah, of Jedediah. Yeah. But but it is like you know we we've talked about these movies just feel so fucking big because the landscape is endless yeah. and you just can't see like any civilization anywhere off in the distance you can't imagine where the crew would be and this movie just does the craziest one of them all which is just like we're going to show you what feels like a different planet and just push in and in and in and in until you realize there's an action scene going on in the middle of it yeah so uh jedediah he buzzes max um with his son steals his shit uh, uh let's say max is in his v8 interceptor but it's being uh drawn by horses that's right which is camel cool camel Camels, camel yeah. i'm sorry i'm sorry uh which is cool right he's presumably run out of guzzling he is out of guzzling Guzzoline. Uh, they don't he don't he know it's max camel. though when he takes the stuff well, no, I don't think they really. Because he's like covered, and they're not. They don't write letters and keep in touch. <laughs> different guy, ostensibly. Okay. Ostensibly different guy. Sure, but okay. I also like that you could read it as being the same as the dark. That's how I did, but yeah. yeah. I would love if they, one of the people who runs one of these post-apocalyptic towns, would have pivoted away from just naming it after what it does and like give us like a Pleasantville right. or something. <laughs> right. <laughs> Sand Village. Yeah. Yeah. Pleasantville. This is where we barter. Um, so yeah, so he makes it to Barter Town, uh-huh. um, where, as the name implies, you got to barter. Yes, you do have to barter, and he's got nothing to barter That's with. He's got so nothing. they're kind of like, um, maybe leave. Everything he got uh, was just not t- was here. just tooken. T- tooken, yeah, right. So, to tooken town. So he's looking to get a little something, to get himself back on the road, and, and they're like, "You got to put up or shut up." You got the, what's the big guy's name? Who's sort of like Auntie Entity's, like uh, oh, you know, with kinda, all the glasses. Yeah, he's yes, sort of like the, the sort little of ombudsman monocle. type, yeah. right? You know, uh, I can't remember their names. Uh, the collector that might be the collector. I think it's this guy, Frank Thring. Yeah, of course. Who is in Ben Hur? Of course, yeah. <laughs> we love him. I think it's this guy. He looks yeah. kind of um, like Connor Ratcliffe. Ooh. Ratliff. He's got a little Ratliff energy. Ratliff. Yeah, this guy, right? Yes. 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 Okay. As they described him, a cold-eyed Australian character actor. Cold-eyed? Particularly cold-eyed. known for his biblical villains. Apparently, his eyes were cold, and it also says here, there's a quote from him on the page, a personal quote on his IMDb page that says, I didn't like school and it didn't like me. There you go. Do you know, Sir Alec Guinness uh, got him fired off of uh, A New Hope because of his cold eyes. <laughs> <laughs> so he gets to Barter Town with the collector. No, but, 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 yeah, yeah, but, 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 but he does some cool Mad Max shit, right? He's still got it. He's got the reflexes. Yeah. He can, you know, get his way out of a fucking headlock or whatever. And so anti-entity is like, all right, all right, all right. You're the real deal. And he's looking kind of busted. He's got long ratty He's got hair. the hair, but they yeah. get rid of that. You yeah. Know, they, they get him looking really, well, what, I need to stop praising Mel Gibson's looks. Yeah. Yeah. Just yeah. St- yeah, let's stop praising his look and start praising his politics. <laughs> I think that he's pretty even handed. Yeah. yeah. What do you um, think of Tina's lair? Great layer. I think it's a great layer. I just still can never get over that you're like Mad Max. Two films that are all just about this one fucking guy. No supporting characters carry over into the second film. Everyone else is kind of just like supplementary, like universe building, window dressing. And then they're like, finally, another actor to share above the title billing with Mel Gibson in the third Mad Max film. Who is it? Of course, Tina Turner in her second film role ever. Like it's such a move to just be like, yes, this one is a two-hander. 
with Tina Turner, right. even though she disappears for a most of the movie. Two-hander with Tina Turner, right. But she seems it's all a T-T-T-H. in. It's a T-T-H. Like, she, uh, uh, you know, I and from yeah. all accounts, uh, she was very... Yeah. She was cool with shaving her head for yeah, the Yeah, she was supportive yeah. on the project and remained friendly with Mel Gibson and tried to help him when he was uh, at his lowest. Uh, uh, but yeah. uh, not that that's, you know, remaining friends with Mel Gibson sure. is necessarily the highest mark of someone's Wrote two honor, songs but, for the movie, both uh, of which were hits. Huge hits. But she, there's not a moment of her performance where you feel her holding back, no. cringing or thinking like, what am I doing here in the fucking desert uh, acting with uh, Mel Gibson? She's well, and, and it's like smart casting in that. In a Mad Max universe, what you're looking for is more rock star energy than conventional actor energy. Yes. You want someone who can wear the shit out of some clothing. Yes. And can move with authority. Lord Humongous, you know, famously headlined OzFest. He did. And uh, now now you have Tina Turner, who famously yeah. did not. And Master Blaster were at Woodstock 2000, right? Yes. Woodstock they, they started, the, they started the fire. They fucked it up. They started yeah. the fire. Oh, Master Blaster is so cool. Yeah. It is so funny that she's like, all right, here's my problem. One, look at these pigs. And Max is like, of course. Yeah, you I got get a it. bunch of pigs. Been there. She's got a periscope in her lair. She has a periscope in her lair. She also has a cool crossbow, which is cool. Uh, okay. yeah. I mean, I feel like you're into crossbows, right? I mean, my parents would never let me have one. Oh, sure. It's interesting they wouldn't let like, why, why not? They're so practical. <laughs> Great thing for a child, though. They said they didn't, they didn't trust me with it. It's bizarre because you proved yourself so responsible with that slingshot. Why wouldn't yeah. they give you a deadlier projectile weapon? It's fine. Just want to remind all our listeners that Ben used to literally carry around a slingshot as a child. I feel like it's a while since that's been brought up, so I just yeah. want to reestablish mm-hmm. that as canon is not legends. It's it is true, main continuity canon. canon. That's, that's some night egg shit. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. But you're um, saying her, her other problem is like, you know, also there uh, is this Voltron of a human right. team. There's yeah. this sort of big, strong guy, <laughs> little smart guy combo what if that knows how to turn pig poop into energy. Right. So I kind of rely on them, but they keep like negging me publicly over the PA system. What if you had a big <laughs> dummy with a tiny gentleman? Uh, I and essentially need you to stop them from tweeting at me in front of right. all of my followers. These people just will not stop. The ultimate reply, guys, yeah. you could say. Master Blaster. They're um, kind of the Krasenstein brothers. But I just, shit I posting just, all day long with pig shit. Pig I, shit posting What I think night. rules about this is that I am on Tina Turner's side at the start yeah. of the movie because she's Tina Turner. So yes. I'm just sort of like, look, Max. Listen to what she's got to say. These Master Blaster, they're lame. Like, all the way up to the reveal yeah. of, like, what's really going on with Master Blaster, uh-huh. you are you are in, you get it. You get why Max is doing well, it. And this is another key. This is why you need to hire Tina Turner. Yes. Or someone of equivalent star power because there are a lot of great supporting character actor performances in these Mad Max movies. But you need someone who shows up and seems like she can go toe-to-toe with Mel Gibson to be the dominant force of this movie. And could also just like use her sheer sort of charisma and inheritance of leadership right. to win over this area. There's the idea that I think is meant to um, rhyme with what happens to Max when he joins the kids at the end of, you know, she was not a bad person. She may still not be a bad person. Right. She was following the ordinary hero's journey, but she planted her flag and st- stuck around a little bit too long, you mm-hmm. know, and you live uh, the hero long enough to become the villain or at least the antagonist. Right. Yeah, like She's she... the least villainous of the right. four Mad Max so, villains. Totally She's just trying to right. hold it together. And right. I think yeah. later on, Max gets the idea where, you know, these kids look at him as a god and he could do some good for them. But there's no way that dynamic doesn't harden into him being some kind of despot, if, if even coming from a paternalistic place, that... Um, he would be better just leaving as a legacy and letting them carry on in the positive image that he left behind. She's in the same boat. That's the weird heroism of Max is that here's a guy who started out as quote unquote 
a good cop, right? This is someone who, by all accounts, at least as the movie codes it, became a law uh, a law official, an officer of the law in order to help people and protect people, right? right? For the right reasons. Right. And then he has everything taken away from him uh, in a way that makes him question all, all justice, yep. right? Seems like he's on a path to becoming an insane vigilante. And then the following three movies, it is him trying to be like, I don't care. I'm right. not going to get invested. He gets sucked into some situation. He's like, well, I don't care. I got a guy. Right. I fucking guy. And the moment he finally like gives in, fights for other people, helps them, and proves himself, and could be seen as a hero, he walks away. He always walks away because right. I think pointedly he doesn't want to become Auntie Entity. He doesn't want to yes. start right. buying his He's own. He's not going to make Max Town right. with fucking you know his like Maxites and have a bunch of Max children. I, th- and, I think yeah. he understands that like the the greatest through line across the Mad Max franchise is like the cult of personality and absolute power corrupting absolutely. That the second these people accept that they have done something great and let people sort of follow their every whim. And listen to their every judgment and build rebuild society in their own image or their own uh, sort of value systems. Mm-hmm. The second they get all fucking out of whack, yeah. you know, because Morton Joe used to be a really fucking cool guy. In Morton Joe, like you know, he built hospitals. Yeah. he built. No, I don't know. <laughs> he was a socialist originally. <laughs> he built hospitals that were entirely uh, filled with people that he had put into those hospitals. Right, he just exactly. needed places to put them. The Morton um, Joe Ward. <laughs> um, anyway, so. Max challenges Master Blaster to a Thunderdome duel. But it's a kind of, as you do. It's a handshake deal. It's like sure, yeah. She's hey, like, look, you, got you do this, I'll refuel your vehicle. I'll give you everything you yeah, need to get yeah, back yeah. on the road. Get the fuck out of here. Right. And what's the thing that he says uh, when he goes like, you know, is he a good fighter? And he gets most most men get killed by his breath or something right. like that. Right. right. I mean, this lie. This movie has some of the greatest disses ever committed to yeah. film, um, and that includes the number one greatest diss of all time, which I don't believe is uttered until the second half of the film when it's spoken by one of the children, who says, and I quote, he's got word stuff from his ass to his mouth. Yep. Which yeah. is uh, really how I've wanted to describe so many people in this world uh, and couldn't possibly say it better myself. I'll say word stuff from ass to mouth is how I usually describe this podcast. <laughs> How dare you? How does he realize that the Blaster's weakness is sound? Like, because he—that's oh, how he defeats Blaster when he's in the, the pig shop. Yes, the right. alarm right. for his car right. goes off, right. Right. and it, right. and he recognizes the high frequency messes with but, him. But the whole Thunderdome sequence is the best sequence in the movie. It's but incredible. It's just—I love it. There's still nothing. It's like, like a no. video game come to life, and there'll never be anything like this. Well, no, no there could be, but like you know what I mean. Like now, it would be Previs, and they it should have just left you know. the Thunderdome standing as a set that other productions right, could exactly. come and use. Every movie should have one exactly. Thunderdome. You could do sequence. like right, just End like of in Act terms one. of endearment, Thunderdome right. or right. XFL. Yes, out of Thunderdome. Yeah. Well, then I watch. But like, what if the opening scene in the Place Beyond the Pines, a movie that I think uh, everyone listening to this podcast knows by heart, of course, not just set in another a, movie that's like pretty good and then really bad, yeah. right? You're like, uh, like not not, not a, this is less extreme. But I you wish know what it I mean? were bad in the same exact way as right. this one yeah, is. Yeah, but yeah. had that not just the, been in a random dome, but in the Thunderdome. Yeah, but it, it is pretty cool. When it the is. Motorcycles oh yeah, are doing that thing. Yeah. Um, yeah. But yeah, no. But like any movie that's shooting, they're like we could shoot in Louisiana. Louisiana for the tax breaks, or <laughs> we could shoot in uh, Melbourne in, for uh, the uh, Thunderdome. I think that's yeah. a big problem, though. If you look it up, the the tax incentives in the Thunderdome are horrible. Yes, that's true. That you have to pay more taxes. Somehow. It's, it's right. easier to like fake Connecticut for Thunderdome. <laughs> 
because there's just a better yeah, initiative but it's there. Just not quite the local the film same. office in Thunderdome is dropping the ball. There are a lot of things that, that are really <laughs> intrinsic to our world today that I I wonder if they have in uh, the wasteland. And the big True. one when I was watching this movie through the lens of my shitty personality mm-hmm. was thinking about neuroses mm. in uh, the wasteland. Like, are there neurotic? People are there. Uh, yeah. Is there self-deprecation sure. or self-loathing, um, or is everyone just is it is it the hierarchy of needs been so reduced that everyone is just thinking like, okay, I gotta I gotta eat, I gotta kill, I gotta survive the Thunderdome. Yeah, because even the weaselly people in the Mad Max universe are very aggro. Yeah. And everyone's constantly, like, speaking through playing the dozens at all times. I feel like, like no one's ever sort of, like, going, like, well, you know, I tried my hardest. Yeah. <laughs> I feel like Jedediah, who's sort of doing his own thing, is the closest to someone we might be able Like, I'm like, I yeah. could see me doing that, like, being kind of like a scavenger jerk. The scene where they go to his, his yeah. home cave. Yeah, that's what I'm thinking yes. of. You know right. who really triggered me, though, was the guy selling water outside of Bartertown, uh-huh. who Mad Max then tests the water and finds all the radiation it's all going, on it. And he's like, what's the problem like, with that? A little fallout pep in your step. It's basically five-hour energy. And I, so, I was that like, that rules. fucking yeah. dick. All that shit is so good. It's, it's so the, bar, the barter town shit. Yeah. I love the Thunderdome. But then, yes, the re- the revelation is that Blaster is has Down syndrome. He's yes. like, you know, yeah. he's not uh, the the aggressive, cruel villain that it's purely he appeared to be. Exactly. Right. He's just Max. got caught cosplaying Bioshock uh, when the fallout yes. hit and was stuck in that look forever. Man, Bioshock's right. so inspired by the look of Master Blaster, right? Yeah. <laughs> sure. And, and also, you know, like deep sea diving. God, I love let's go with Master so Blaster. Much. Yeah, let's go with Master Blaster. Uh, I should do that on my video game podcast. Yeah. Uh, and so, and Max is just like, I'm out. Yeah. I'm out. I'm not, I'm not fucking doing this. But like, he announces it to the yes. audience, which is and a He's like, you tricked me, anti entity. Like, no, no. Yeah. I fulfilled my part of the deal. Right. And then Blaster is like, deal. What are you talking about? Deal. Right. Everyone sort of turns on him. He's like, I'm not doing this. I'm not doing the killing. Right. Um, so, wait, can so, I, so, wait, can oh, just, uh, you got to get Gore Verbinski on the podcast. I think you can get him talking about the Bioshock movie that he never made. Now I is the time. I would love to hear now about that. I feel like he's been attached to multiple video and game movies. I want Karen yeah. Han sobbing quietly in the corner, not speaking. I just want to hear. Uh, I would love to talk to him about hours. Bioshock because Bioshock is not that I wouldn't love filmable in a way that most yeah. video game movies are not. Uh, anyway, Anti has. Blaster. She just kills Blaster. She Crossbow. she finishes the job. She crossbows. crossbows him. Max, get out of here. Yeah. Get on a horse. You don't belong here. Right, exactly. You're going yeah. that away. Yeah. Five stars for this movie so Agreed. far. Agreed. I'm just like, this is the bad one, but I also know, I do know that there are these Ewok-esque kids on the horizon. Well, once again, who I I'm quote unquote not gonna like. And I like the kids. Yes. This is the thing. I turn I like the kids just fine. Wait, can we just before the moment has passed completely, can we have a moment, if not of silence, of uh, quiet contemplation for the random extra outside of the Thunderdome who gets murdered during the fight? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> One of my favorite extras. Uh just what a way to go. And how excited that guy must have been when he was picked by George Miller to be the, to the guy on the cage who gets killed. Featured extra, man. Um, hey, also the scepter carrying uh, shoulder pad scarecrow yes, creepy guy. You mean your uncle? Yeah. <laughs> A lot of shoulder pads Wait, in this movie. Would you get residuals, Griffin, if you were the extra who's killed outside of Thunderdome? Huh. Extras uh, don't get residuals. They don't. Right? But I, I featured extras. I think it, featured right. extras don't. I don't think, I think you need a certain I think amount of lines or whatever, the right? Yeah. Yeah. You yeah. get a harpoon. 
You got to harpoon. You got to yeah. D- yeah. Dialogue's the crossover because there's like been a – I've been on sets where like people will be improvising lines specifically referencing certain extras, like naming them. Mm-hmm. And then they'll get to the point where they're like, can we let him say something? And it becomes the debate of do we have the room in the budget to bump him up to respond to the ad lib and say yes. But what constitutes dialogue? So if I was impaled by something and went, ah, and then fell off, a, let's say, a Thunderdome. Right. Would that – be enough to, to constitute dialogue? Possibly. But certainly if it was like, no, it would immediately cross over. I wonder if it has to, I, I wonder if you take a, have to take out Miriam Webster's mm. and go like, ah, is not in here. Mm. You know, it has to be. Can I play this word in the New York Times spelling I guess that's part of the not? question. But I think, I think the, it's usually any method. sort of clear verbalization that isn't in a crowd. Okay. Yeah. Mamax Beyond Thunderdome. Sure. <laughs> he goes beyond Thunderdome. This goes, is yeah. actually the point at which he goes beyond Thunderdome. That's how, when the title starts to make itself. How pretty. fucking badass would it be if he went like a Ho Shao Shen route and dropped the title card when he left Thunderdome? That would be very cool. That would oh. That would, I mean, oh. I am always a fan of like the 45 minutes in dropping. I believe, yes. uh, what's it called? Long Day's Journey Tonight drops oh, the title card two ever. hours in. Yeah. And with great purpose. Yeah, I mean, no, 100%. Really, uh, 100%. But man, that move is always so hot. Alias used to pull that. It would drop the title card like 30 minutes into an episode or whatever. Like there, there's, there's shows Departed. That- I think it's 40 minutes. It's not 40. Departed has three full sequences, though. And, and, and they're long does. sequences. They're long. Last Life in the Universe. A lot of uh, Asian films sure. over the last like, 20 years. I feel like there's another stuff. big one I'm forgetting that we've covered on this podcast where the title card comes really late. Hmm. But whatever. I'm not going to hold us up on it. I do think, once again, I just want to reestablish I feel like it's a thing. hard thing to Google. Yes. Uh, it, it is one of there's these There's got to be a letterbox list. There's Sorry. something. Uh, Eternal Sunshine also takes a long time before it gets to the first title card. Um... But uh, th- this is one of those movies that most of its issues are only a matter of comparison where it's like, A, you're in a franchise where the bar is set so high where the second movie totally like trumps the first movie. And then you also have a third movie in which the first 40 minutes are so fucking insanely good that it's almost impossible to live up to them. That I like everything that happens for the rest of this movie. It just doesn't rock my fucking socks to the exactly. same extent. That's how I feel too. But also, I don't want the uh, dipping quality of the second half to elevate the first half too much. I mean, I think the first half of this movie is very solid. Yeah. Uh, and again, I'm just talking about in terms of the greater Mad Max universe. I mm-hmm. think on its own would be even more impressive. But it's not. It, it doesn't quite reach the heights of some of the other movies. Okay, he's in the desert. He's got a dang mask on his head. He's on a horse. <laughs> Fair point. I'm going to th- I'm gonna say something that's going to uh, incur the, the wrath of a certain subsect of blankies, but I don't care. We have pissed them off before. I'm going to piss them off again. I stand by it. Oh my God. From the moment Max comes upon this tribe of kids, I go, this is already superior to Hook. Oh, yeah. This uh, is the exact sure. dynamic Spielberg is trying to achieve with the Lost Boys and Hook. That feels so forced to me in that film. So like '90s tubular. Every it's kid has to be an action figure. Skateboard? Am I remembering? Yeah, everything. of course they, they do. do. I they mean, do they... every fucking thing. <laughs> I tweeted. They I do think... the backpack dance. <laughs> they do trends that wouldn't exist for another twenty years. They they th- throw down pogs. Yes, I agree with you. Yeah. I think the problem with Hook, in general, mm-hmm. is what you're talking about. Is that everything's a little too clean? Yeah. You know, the kids feel like they're, you know, what like they've all been 
cast out of toy commercials, you know. Business, which Spielberg himself admits he's the first one to throw this criticism at himself. Yeah, no, I'm sorry. It cannot be a hot take to say that Hook has some problems. Not a single <laughs> one of them looks at Rufio and says he's got word stuff from his ass to his mouth. Yeah. Which is, should have been the first line of dialogue in almost every But scene. I also, I think there is genuine chaotic energy to these children. You know, there's yes. a sense of danger. And I like their dialect. I like how weird they sound. I like their right. weird way of talking. Uh, future speak. This is like, I think maybe the best out of all it's, four. It's up there. It's so good. I really like the kids like are the delivering on future it. Speak. But yes, yeah. the kids are good. This They're feels like good. a really direct precursor to the true true of Cloud Atlas. Oh, yes. That is a very good point. Yeah. But I do think, uh, you know, th- there's something to, even if this is the most sort of, uh, cute section of any Mad Max film. Sure. This still is the only time I've seen someone build a society of children like this in a a genre film that feels aggressively dangerous, you know, in the way that kids yep. uh, governing other kids would, would actually be. We were like, dangerous for sure. <laughs> it's half Lost Boys and it's half like Lord of the Flies, but it's also like this is the language that kids would speak if kids raised each other. But I think he gets a little bit caught up in, in – he's snagged between wanting to tell a softer story that is a little bit more permeable mm-hmm. for the Max character to, like, have that sort of coming out as he's described it towards uh, his better – the better angels of his nature. Yeah. And also wanting to maintain the savagery of the wasteland. Right. Mm-hmm. And I actually think that while, I, while there's truth in what you're saying, I feel like – Max's evolution would have been better served by a more violent society of kids that he had to help curb through his own sort of reform ways. I I think in a much smaller, more focused, but also subtler way, his entire relationship with the feral child gets at all of these ideas better and more economically. Right. And that is a more dangerous, violent child. Right. Um, This feels a little Toy Story 3 where it's like, we're going to – it's the same theme as Toy Story 2, but we're just going to hit it harder and let it reach its natural conclusion mm. rather than introducing a fully new idea. Right. And you have the same ending pretty much. Not to jump ahead, but Road Warrior and Beyond Thunderdome have the same ending where it's like one of the children narrating what their life was like for this the years true. after Max left. And then the Randy Newman song for uh, Thunderdome comes in. <laughs> you got a Thunderdome. I love the opening song. Yeah, it would rules yeah. in this movie. It is, dare I say, better than uh, you can't let yourself. You can't throw yourself away. We can't. I let think you that's throw a great song, away. and I'm going to fight you on that. So bad. It it's is, so much better. Griffin, it's, it is absolutely insane. It is, it's, it's a great, it's a great song. song. Utterly vile. I listen to garbage. it all the time. I adore Randy Newman. He's I own multiple Randy Newman albums. Yeah. I like a lot of it's his song. Pixar songs. He literally got on stage, and I I support the man. He yeah. should play on the Oscars every year for all I care. But he's literally just got on stage and was like. I just can't let you throw yourself away like 40 he times. And I was like, what is going on? Formal letter of apology nope. to Mary <laughs> Steenburgen for being nominated. No, but that was not the worst song nominated. She should have been nominated. No, she should have well, won. Maybe it was. She should have won. That was no. the most egregious the snub all of last year. The breakthrough song is that. No offense to is, Diane Warren, but yeah. that was the worst. No, offense to Diane Warren, who has <laughs> yeah. written the song 12 times for the Oscars <laughs> it's before, true. is really phoning it in even harder than Randy Newman does here. Randy Newman's song is truly it's a perfect song. It's a perfect song. I listen to it all the time. There's at least craftsmanship in the Diane Warren song even if it's the same tired craftsmanship can I recite some lyrics for you I can't let you I can't let you 
I can't let you. I can't let you. I can't let you throw yourself away. Yeah, I remember. I, I seem to remember that. It's uh, a suicide yeah. prevention like... song for a sport. <laughs> Perfect. Yeah, yeah, no, in the movie, it's fine. Like, it's, it's very great. cute. Yeah, yeah, yeah. One of my favorite sequences. It's a great sequence. Yeah. There. I think, I, I mean, I was afraid they were going to nominate Ballad of a Lonesome Cowboy, which I think is the more traditionally Oscar baby sure. song, but is the end credit song. Yeah. I was happy that they nominated the Forky song. Or they could have nominated neither. Could have gone yeah, for that. They could have, they could have just nominated uh, Glasgow disagree. from Wild Rose. Yeah, that should have won. Sir, I agree with like the best original I agree movie song in shallow in years. Uh, what one was the Elton John song? Right. Because, oh, yeah. and what, what sealed the deal right. was he's, him he's at the like, Golden Globes. Oh, Bernie like, never won a Globe. We've yeah. never won yeah. something together. Yeah, and everyone in the fuck. audience was like, oh. Yeah, I guess I'll yeah. do that one. But yeah. also, you have just won something together. That is why you now were on stage happened. at the Golden Globes. Right. There's no need to We all know Golden Globes again. don't count. Those things are only Golden useful. Golden Globes are the caucuses of award season. And we need to abolish them. We need to abolish them. Exactly. They're fucking everything up. Every year, we're always like, these don't matter. And every year we treat them as if they're life or death. And just because like 40 people in Iowa show up to a gym right. to run across the room and be like, Tom Steyer. Uh, and bombshell. Like, yeah, bombshell. Like, These this 10 is, people. This is why our democracy is fucked. And I think it starts with ending the Golden Globes. We got to end the Golden Globes. That's the first thing we got to abolish. Um, yes, let's I'm do a single it. issue voter. And my <laughs> issue is abolish the Hollywood Forum. We got to cancel the millionaires and the billionaires. And of course, the Golden Globes. Yeah. The foreign gossip <laughs> journalists. The SAGs can stay. Yeah. Um, I do like the whole captain thing. I do like this idea of like, even if the story has gotten distorted, of course, if we are to presume that Max has been going through these cycles many times yes. off screen in between the films that we've seen, right. that eventually he would start to build a reputation. Yeah. You know, he would become a sort of mythic figure, the idea of this savior. I mean, because the the painting on the wall is clearly him. No, hundred percent. Even just, if he was not an airplane pilot, I do like the idea though that like by the time Fury Road comes around again, everyone's just like, "Who's this guy?" Like that sure. the, the world is just so splintered now. Yeah, that uh, I'm every not little saying bit, he would be yeah. infamous, but yeah. that enough it, there would be pockets of the world where people would be like, "I hear this is a guy who comes sure. and saves people." Well, there's something that again, I'm just like, what just read this one. Uh, really illuminating interview with George Miller that I've quoted at every time I've mentioned anything he said in this uh, episode. But he talks about the dynamic between, and this is about the children, um, like the little lost kids. Mm-hmm. He's talking about the dynamic between uh, knowledge and belief mm-hmm. and and uh, like the faith that they have is a direct sort of negative image of the uh, lack of knowledge that they have. And so it's like all has to be balanced out to an equilibrium. Oh, that's interesting. And yeah. they need to have this sort of religious uh, ideology they have around the, the mythology they have around the Mad Max character because they have so little hard knowledge about the world sure. around them. Sure, there has to be something to justify them getting out of dirt in the and morning. And so if you extrapolate that to yeah. an entire wasteland of both kids and adults who are all looking for something to believe in because they have so little concrete reason for hope, um, it would be so easy for, I mean, you see how the cult of personalities flourish, but it would be that much easier for an abstract figure to right. have, uh, you know, a place in everyone's hearts and minds. Right. The adults tend to congregate around these um, uh, power uh, structures that build up very quickly around like titans uh, and tyrants and demagogues and whatever. But these kids are are into the abstract notion of we're not going to sign up for what anyone else is selling. We believe that there's someone out there who is setting 
a template for how we should it's follow. It's because, like, in my understanding, they are the first generation. I mean, their parents were on that plane, which sure. took off from a runway in the, yes. in the industrialized world. This yeah. is the first generation of people who know nothing besides the way. But that's land. what right. I always like and, about Mad Max is that it's always kind of like the near-ish yeah. future. Yeah. You know, like, they never let it advance. Right. But, but the idea that you had, you couldn't find that sort of seed of of hope that could excite that sort of meaningful change in people who had lived to see the fall of man and had sure. been like that jaded by everything that came from it. You needed people who were born into this and were like, why not hope? Like, why not? Right. Uh, even if it's a hope to go backwards and like right. to, to backwards to the future of tomorrow, tomorrow land. Because their life hasn't been uh, such a dramatic set of diminishing returns, right. having to watch a society collapse. They're just being handed a pile of shit and going, couldn't we have something better than this? Yeah. Explain to me why it's not possible to build something better here. I like the kids. I, I do. I like them. I just don't like, and, and, I, and I say this as a, a new father, I just don't know if I like kids uh, oh in movies anyway. I like, when agree. is a movie better for having children? Bicycle Thieves. Okay, that's one movie. Yeah, there's that, good movies with kids, obviously. No, there, but, yeah, there's one movie that's good with kids. Uh, <laughs> no, there's, there are good movies with kids, but often, yes. I, I'm sort of they just take bring it or leave all their the sticky kids. hands yes. in, and they want to touch. You can't things. tell that their and hands are no, sticky. No, you can. You can see the, the viscous, the jelly hands, man. Yeah. Uh, and they're just like, man. Ah, they have these voices that are kind of, kind of high pitched. They all want things. They all want candy and stuff. Or like, I got some tough spoilers <laughs> for the next couple of years of your life. But I do feel like narratively, kids have uh, certain demands that can sink a lot of movies. That uh, and we always see it in the third part of trilogies. It feels like the Ewok mm. are, Ewoks are sort of the sure. kid equivalents who soften things up, tenderize the main characters, so they can have that sort of change. Yeah, um, and I feel like it backfires a lot because kids are really hard to wrangle uh, in these cases. They just, I, you know, I, they, I, I don't, I again don't hate it, but like the movie does kind of slow down. And I'm just sort of like, this is a little, I'm just kind of staring into space for some of but these But this scenes. is also, this is the only Mad Max movie that suddenly has like a 30 to 40 minute stretch without any action sequences. I know, but It's I, not just that they're kids. I don't kids. like it that. Makes, <laughs> I don't either. I like the I action sequences, right. But I don't think that's inextricably tied to the kids thing. I think no, that's more no, that, that, Exactly, to, but yes. that's the problem. But, that to me but is the problem. But then you associate the two things. Exactly, right. Because they are... Happening I mean, Mad Max movie. is very D and D in that it's sort of like you go from like sort of situation to situation, new cast of characters, yeah, new mission, and you're like, wondering what's the deal here. Right. Okay, and this is just the least interesting of the locations in all of the Mad Max. Wait, movies, what's basically. a good movie about like a roving gang of kids? Not just like one kid. Like to think of it, a very recent example, Minari, which we saw at Sundance, mm, as one kid, kid, amazing kid, incredible film. Roving what gang. about like a roving gang of kids with a majority of kids? Gummo. <laughs> Gummo. Uh, okay. We got Gummo. Um, gang of Kim, Bugsy Malone. <laughs> yeah, I feel like this should be my question. Yeah, exactly. And I can't think of one. Because when you were a kid, you stand kid actors because you were sort of like, that could be me. Well, right? I, I simultaneously stand and reviled them uh, for, for taking the jobs that I thought I deserved without auditioning. Sure, sure. I was constantly waiting for like someone to notice me on a street corner sucking a lollipop and be like, kid, you got it. Hey, little girl. You got what it daddy <laughs> yeah. A lot of that. Yeah. Um, I did. But now I'm trying to think. I mean, we, we talked about this recently. I forget if it was on mic or off mic with uh, Emily Ishida, Mother Blankies, Laura Askell's movie. Um, 
Yeah, little rascals, right. I mean, they exist. I, my brain immediately goes to little giants. Anything with the word little in the right. title. But that's when you get, like, that's I believe teams. they came out the same year. But yes, yeah. yeah. Teams is different than gangs, I feel like. Like, if we're talking about, like, uh, sports league movies. Yeah. I'm a huge D2 fan. I'm a big heavyweights fan. Yeah, but I, feel I like the, D2 a lot. D2, D2 is really I mean, good. despite the fact that it is slanderous towards Iceland, um, it is, it like, paints everyone who lives there as an evil Cretan. They don't yeah, even they to- have... They totally just span a globe and were like, who are the villains? Iceland. But they like Rocky yeah. for right, Iceland. Right, right, like, right. Iceland really is the do. loveliest place on Earth. They yeah, don't I know, really I know, play hockey that much. I forgot that Iceland was the villain. I guess they were just like, Russia is tired. It's the 90s right. now. We need new sort of, you know, northern European villains. I don't think there's villains. a single Icelandic hockey player in the NHL. Um, no, anyway, it's not a big country. Well, but they, they say Iceland's very nice, and, and Greenland is uh, rather very mean. cold. Yeah, <laughs> it's that Iceland is more green, and Greenland right. is right. more. But nice. their little giants thing is more weighted towards the kids and the dynamics between them, and they're also younger. Yeah. Whereas uh, Mighty Ducks, soon to be rebooted mm-hmm. with Emilio Estevez exhumed mm-hmm. and uh, Lauren Graham, is uh, is more about like the. It's a more of a way back. You got the kids, but really, sure. it's about the coach. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, oh, you know what's another one I really like? Uh, Big Green. Sure. The big, the big Green. The, the red-headed big kid green. whose name I never know. Bacall. Or the, or the larger Bacall. kid. <laughs> Lauren Bacall. <laughs> you don't remember Lauren Bacall plays the goat in the Big Green? <laughs> yeah. Um, it was I, the 90s. Yes. Yes. No, I know which kid you're talking about. Uh, and now I'm forgetting his name. I um, feel like he could have been a Judd Apatow superstar if he had come along just a couple of years later. Well, Judd Apatow does heavyweights. And it feels that's, like that uh, kid the, just that missed. Diagram, right? right, yeah. yeah. Uh, anyway, anyway, anyway. Mm-hmm. Uh, this section of the movie's not that much fun to talk about. No, and, and they kind of, of just world build for you. They tell yeah. you about the flight captain, who they think he is, and like... I don't know, their whole story. And it's a lot of ben, them getting on. ready, yeah. them well, getting closer. This is very bad. It is. Well, and yeah, I don't like seeing Max really get close with yeah. them. Yeah. He yeah. holds one of them during the presentation. Yeah. Well, technically, like. this is kind of a paradise lost. In yeah, that's that the thing. They've water. They've water. <laughs> it's all yeah. good. Yeah. yeah. They have, like, vegetation. They might even be able to hunt animals. I don't know. That's a good point. It feels like it's one thing if this is where Max ends up at the end of a film. Right. But he shows up and they're like, we want to leave. And he's like, don't leave. And I'm just like, yeah, Max is right. Don't leave. Yeah. But kids, kids don't know. This gave me an Ewok vibe. Yes, it's very Ewok. Ewok. And it's a couple years post Return of the Jedi. Yeah. And you are right that like it's like the Ewoks. It's the, you know, they, they exist to soften up. Our characters, we don't really need oh, softened okay. up. I like how Max teaches lessons by shooting a gun. Yeah, that's great. <laughs> yeah, and that, that's fine. <laughs> he's disciplining him, yes. and he's teaching him important life lessons. It's a cool school. Uh, what did you guys think about the moment when one of the kids says he's got word stuff from his ass to his mouth? I like that. Part. We haven't discussed that, that line part. yet. Yeah, yeah. That was I thought that was a real part. pick me up. Uh, two things I'd like to bring up, just because I think we haven't discussed them yet in this episode. Uh, one, the kids have a little bit of an Ewoky vibe. And two, there is that line where the kid says, uh, you got words from ass to your mouth. Uh, uh, all right. Um, goth kid, great. Design, <laughs> he's cool. Sure. So then Savannah, one of the kids, and a bunch of other kids leave. She's really good. She's kind of leading She's a kid. Good. She's very yeah, good. Yeah, they have a little yeah. tantrum. Uh, and one of them gets stuck in a sinkhole, so Max has to go fucking get him, and yeah. then we have to have our final action They don't sequence. save that one. No, that one's gone. <laughs> that one goes down the sinkhole. Another life lesson. <laughs> Which Avoid actually sinkholes. comes up all the time in cartoons. We're like, quicksand, stay away from quicksand. Right, Sometimes kids right. sink. That would yeah. be yeah. such a bad way to go. Oh, boy. 
just slowly uh, suffocating under Can you imagine a nightmare. just getting sucked in the quicksand, never getting to tell Ray the thing you want to tell her? Yeah. That you're oh, also, yeah, right. I'm force sensitive. I don't really know how you think about the force, but I just sort of like a kind of a mental vibe recently. Ray, also, I want to make sure you understand that Palpatine's actually a clone of Palpatine's a clone and Exegol, a Sith cultist, have built those ships. Uh, Don't worry about it. You'll learn about it on a Star Wars tweet. And, and, and if you're going to kiss uh, Kylo, I get it. It's more of a platonic respect thing than a sexual thing. Also, Ray, I strongly recommend that you download the Fortnite DLC. Oh, we can thread the needle between, uh, or not thread the needle, that's probably not the right term here. We can uh, connect the dots between Star Wars mm. and uh, Mad Max. Mad Max. Mad Max. <laughs> what are we talking about? Yeah. Uh, on the Wikipedia page for Mad Max Thunderdome, uh, which is, of course, my second resource for information after I've exhausted the IMDb trivia of page. Course, but of course. It says at the end that friend of the pod, Chris White. Oh, yes. Is cited as having Mad Max Thunderdome and not any other Mad Max, specifically this film, as an inspiration for he him. He cited this as one of his major influences, this one. Uh, That's fair. Uh, he couldn't have made About a Boy Without It. Yeah. Shout out Chris Weiss. Uh, no, it's, he was making in 2014 a show that never got off the ground that had something to do with post-apocalyptic children that would have reversed the curse, I am sure, about uh, entertainment properties based around roving gangs of kids. Um, but uh, yeah, he is the one filmmaker cited as being inspired by this yeah. movie. Yeah, wow. I'd love to talk to Chris about it. I thought about DMing him last night, yeah. and then I just clicked a link, and it like has at length his thoughts about why he mentioned that. And Fair I was enough. like, well, I guess that's what he had to you say. You know what? I'm going to say it right here. At this moment, let's cut to an audio clip of Chris White's sure. telling us let's just do it. some of his thoughts on Beyond Thunderdome. Hi, guys. Uh, so I'm going to be quick because um, I might be interrupted by a child at any moment. Also, I thought that uh, my uh, message for the fifth anniversary thing was probably too long and lugubrious. So I'm going to try to keep this uh, uh, short. Um, so it was probably some bullshit I was saying while I was on tour, on a book tour, trying to get people interested in this, um, this, this series of books that I was writing, which ironically enough was about a virus that killed off everybody except young people. Um, anyway, that was a waste of three years of my life. But um, I, and, and everything I can say about um, Beyond Thunderdome has actually been superseded by um, Fury Road, which is a much better movie, but also brings up some of the things I liked about um, Beyond Thunderdome. So here, here they are quickly. Uh, one of them in terms of movie making is the importance of subsidiary characters, right? Each person has his own kind of particular kind of swagger or uh, attitude to the world. I think, you know, uh, another thing would be that I'm really interested in uh, temporary cities or cities that are built up from nothing. And that doesn't not reflect in any movies that, I, that I've made, really. Um, but uh, it is sort of reflecting what I'm interested in in my life, like Burning Man, for instance, uh, which is sort of a big part of my life where I met my wife, is, uh, is, is influenced by uh, Mad Max to a great extent. In fact, it's in some kind of uh, slightly... Uh, uh, overblown ways like for instance there is a thunderdome there where people actually do fight and they don't kill each other but they kind of generally manage to break somebody's arm or uh, rupture testicles or things like that um and i think that the, but the most important thing is probably in terms of the stuff that i write which is that i think that um you know barter town has its own uh, logic to it its own kind of uh, uh, conventions and uh, culture and modes of, of power that explain why things are going on. And as I find myself writing, especially some of these Disney things, actually, weirdly, like, you know, Cinderella or um, 
uh, what else am I working on? Anyway, uh, I, I, I start to think about like, what is the, um, what is the social economy? What is the cultural economy of this place? How does it work? What's the political economy uh, of a movie, um, of, of the culture in a movie? And I think that that's something that's incredibly well realized, um, although not overly um, explained in uh, George Miller's movies. And that's pretty great. Another thing I think they always do really well is, is to, um, is to tailor the geography of things to the necessity of the plot without it being too obvious. You know, the, a lot of um, the Mad Max movies are kind of there and back again or in a straight line or, you know, looping around from one place to another and the places are exactly the way that they need to be to make the hero do the things that he uh, needs to do or she needs to do. Um, I think that's about it for now. Thank you, guys. Uh, in under three minutes, Ray. Bye-bye. And hey, if he didn't weigh in, that's okay. We still like him. We still like yeah, him. Right, if he was busy or something. But but hopefully, <laughs> yes. you just heard him talk about the influence this movie had on him. And I did pretty good uh, as an interviewer, right? I think you <laughs> Uh-oh. Uh, and, of course, uh, he mentioned that he's going to come on and do, a, uh, on the Patreon, mm. uh, a live commentary for About a Boy, uh, a masterpiece. Oh, such a good movie. Yeah. I continue to think movie. of my life in uh, 30-minute units of time. Yeah. That's no a man big, is an island. That's a big panic attack movie. Rachel Vice. Mm, that's a good warm bath movie for me because it's got the right amount of sadness to it too. It doesn't feel like Sh- hollow placation. You know, shake your ass, watch yourself. Show me what you're working with, Mystical. Uh, yes, correct. it's a Mystical joint. Yes. All right. So come on. The final sequence is a big train. They get this thing on track, which is really cool. It has some Paddington two energy. It does, but the difference between... And Master, I like seeing Master in this new light, you mm-hmm. know, yes. where he's more of a befuffled professor type. He's but there's one gentleman. key. Yeah. There's one key difference, and only one that I can think of, mm-hmm. between the third act of Beyond Thunderdome mm-hmm. and Paddington 2, which is. is that everything that happens in the third act of Paddington 2 is brilliantly set up in the first act of Paddington mm-hmm. 2. No, I, yes. I, I Whereas know. I, in yeah. the third act of Beyond Thunderdome, my big problem with it is just it feels like we have sort of uh, shifted rails to another movie entirely. It is and funny it that they're just really, like, yeah, there's a train. Yeah. And it's just like, I, I want to be on board with this action sequence, but the it's hard to sort rules. of get. It is great. The yeah. choreography of it is great. I yeah. love the grace note. And I do want to talk about like the, the 80s, back when movies, you know, to get to, to just think about the good old days, like back when when movies like this actually took their time and had mm-hmm. moments for like expressions of humanity. That wonderful scene where he's helping, he's standing outside and he's helping the kids play the record player, mm-hmm. and it's the lesson recorded, uh, the French lesson, um, and it sort of blows their minds, expands their worlds. This idea of other languages, um, it's great. It's the kind of thing that would be never even conceived of in a movie that was made today, a blockbuster of this kind, written in a writer's room, and so on. Mm-hmm. But. Uh, the it's just it's just like what movie are we in at this point? It's it's just all there, over the place. There are kind right. of three separate movies in yes. this, and they kind of go from one to the other. Right, they don't feel disconnected, but they're also not. Well, that's what I'm saying. Like pretty cool. The other Mad Max films are so much on the road. Yeah, and the first two thirds of this movie has almost no vehicular shit. It's true. Right? I mean, so, like, first act is pretty much the Thunderdome world building. No, you're right. You're right. Fight. It is. And it, it is lacking a little bit. You do, you know, you do like you do like a bit of, you know, yeah. high speed. Which, from the moment uh, Jedediah takes his uh, vehicle, that, that's pretty Sets much out of the, the equation. Right? Then act two is Max learns to care again, which <laughs> is foot off the gas for too long. Yeah. And then act three is here's the Mad Max vehicle chase that you wanted. Right. Only you're, this time. 
It's on tracks. Uh, and I do feel like that shot of the train going straight at the camera is like the Mad Max shot yeah. that everyone thinks of. Now, all was the it time. just me, or did you feel like the train was going to come through? Yeah, the I screen. jumped off my couch. Uh, yeah. and it was terrifying. Yeah, it, was, terrifying. it was bad. Um, yeah, I don't know. It's pretty cool. And I like that Auntie gets a sort of nice ending note. Mm-hmm. You know, versus the other Mad Max. Grudging respect. Exactly. Well, I wanted to say, I feel like Master Blaster is a totally different character when he's got his suit on. Yeah. Even just the way he's like carrying himself. I don't know. He was like a master of a pig poop factory and now he's all like polished looking. I just That's found that thought. weird. You know, it's like that thing where like sometimes like old people who've been married for decades and then one of them dies and the other one's like... Fuck, I got to figure out a new personality now, you know? Sure. They were a unit. They were, like, so inextricably tied that, like, he cannot be the same guy without his big buddy. I mean semi-sincerely, but do you think that there's kind of a resonance with Master Blaster between Miller and his producing partner? Oh, you know, I mean, I I think possibly. I think that's part of—I mean, because there is the moment where these two characters who— at presentation, just feel like another element of like chaotic Mad Max world building. The moment that uh, uh, Blaster, Blaster's the bigger one, Master's yes. the smaller one, right? Blaster is unmasked and everyone sees his vulnerability and Master jumps into the Thunderdome is sort of like the Rancor Keeper. Right. Where it's like, this isn't just like a survival thing. Like I care about right. this person. I mm-hmm. protect this person. I am emotionally tied to this person. We are inextricably connected. I wouldn't be surprised if – because because Miller always talks about that. He was like – they were very much films that were made by the two of us. The fact that I have the director credit and he does not – is kind of extraneous from the sure. reality of how we work. But also what better metaphor or visual expression for the relationship between a director and a producer yeah. than a tiny person yeah. riding a much bigger person yeah. uh, and controlling them. <laughs> and, I don't know. And he has to pick himself off the floor, put on a little suit, get in a helicopter, yeah, figure right. out who he is, get in a little plane. And rather. then, um, I don't know. And then, But like this is kind of, I, I guess the last thing I want to try to make sure we talk about before we get on the box office game and what have you is I do think the Mad Max films are such an interesting case study in different ways that you can build a franchise, whereas I think, like, the thought of a franchise has become so binary now. It is so much... uh, Most people trying to follow the exact same model. But you saying, Ehrlich, that, like, that thing, like, the the scene of him playing the front record for the children is something that would never come out of a writer's room. But I also get so bummed out when... Post Rise of Skywalker, I saw so many people say, like, well, the problem is that they didn't strategize and blueprint out the entire trilogy before they started filming the first one, which I don't necessarily think is the right approach. But now because Marvel has done that, and to be fair, that's an an ever-evolving thing. It's not like Kevin Feige had 22 fucking scripts written out. You see those movies adjusting on the fly. He knew in advance exactly how much money all those films are going to make in China and what characters were going to be popular. Exactly. Like he's like fucking like changing the levels constantly in the edit based on what's working and what isn't. Ryan Johnson says time and time again when he was writing and directing far and away, I think you can universally agree on without any uh, any rancor or dissension whatsoever, the best film in that trilogy. Mm -hmm. He was really on his own with no guidance from the greater Lucasfilm uh, system. Philosophically, I like the fact that Kathy Kennedy was like, our approach is not Marvel. Our approach is hire the right person, let them tell the story they want to tell. But then they hired the wrong person. They hired the wrong person twice. And then the other problem was, I think that she was so beholden to this like every other year thing, mm-hmm. which is just not enough time to be able to like 
stick your fi- lick your finger, stick it up to the air, and figure out how the public's responded to the thing, rather than reacting sort of based solely on immediate fear. You, there's not enough time for the response to settle. Um, but I also just think that sort of writer's room mentality that like a film franchise has to be seen as like a season of television. And you look at the Mad Max movies and they're all kind of like the same variations on the same story told over and over again yes. with one character who's not going through conventional growth. No. And it is just every time like changing the world around him to some degree. Making right, it bigger, even in this, even though he wins, the kids kind of win him over yeah. and he helps him out and then they go find like ruined Sydney and they're going to live in it or whatever. He then departs like that sure. the classic Max. He's then like. All right, I'm going to wander. Gonna yeah, it's like the trip wander. movies, you know? They go to a different city somewhere, right. they eat their way through it, and then they go the separate ways, and, and they and bring the same problems to the right, next Right, there, there's a cyclical nature to it, and then there are variations every time, and it's interesting to see how they build the things that are standard to the franchise. Interesting to see which things they remove or add. But I just think, like, uh, not everything needs to be uh, a saga in the way that I think people are, yeah. are conditioned now to believe they need to be. And and in a way that bums me out where people have to like act like the whole time we had this plan and this right. was the big story we're telling. Sure. Mad Max can just kind of be this thing where like you can watch any one of these four Which movies is, and they work as a movie on their own as a complete meal. It's really symptomatic I think of like Reddit culture yes. right now and the idea of, of – I mean Westworld 2, season 2 will always be the nadir of that for me uh-huh. um, and, and writing for the mystery of it all and, and yeah. for the, the breadcrumbs and the clues. But this idea of the – you see it with the Pixar unifying theory and all that shit, which may have predated the sort of current Reddit boom of, of people talking about movies this way. But it is everything is sort of a puzzle to solve right. um, and not a story to enjoy. But there are – and I'm very guilty uh, over the years in my own writing in particular talking about uh, being a little sanguine about uh, the way that these sort of larger scale movies mm-hmm. used to be um, and the grace with which they were told. But watching something like this – even at its most mediocre moments, there's such beauty yeah. in the, the the blue of the sky in this movie is so there's like deep cerulean shade that is just like completely arresting. Even when you're bored by anything else, your eyes can sort of wander through that. Um, the there are those quiet moments. The sound design. I mean, there's so many textural things about this movie that would be plastic in yeah. a modern uh, conception of this and also and and I uh, just to lay some controversy in the ground for your forthcoming Fury Road episode which uh-huh. I don't know if you've recorded yet um, but uh, one thing I think this movie does that or does not do that Fury Road does too much for me is uh, it actually is at peace with the pace of which the action flows and doesn't speed ramp it um, no, back, I like this which, which like 70% of Fury Road is is framed ahead like and it just it. it's a little irritating that's, to that's me that's that Chuck Jones energy um, but I do think, yes, I mean, you don't find those smaller moments. You don't find that sort of peace and tone and air uh, uh, to a film if you are so concerned with the sort of franchise building of it, about setting up the next film and paying off the things from the last film. And these movies are so much closer to, like, Charlie Chaplin movies sure. where it's like half of those films he's ostensibly playing the same character, but he's not bothering himself with having to go, like, so is this before or after he makes the blind woman think that he's a rich man? Like none of that matters. There is a growth to this character across four films because he's gotten older. But also it's built in a way where then a different actor can take over the fourth one and it doesn't disrupt the apple cart. Yeah. And he's not doing an impression, but he's also not doing something totally different. But you different. wouldn't think that was true. You wouldn't think You know what I mean? True. Like when Fury was coming out, it's not like I was like they need Gibson. Yeah. I was more kind of like – 
you know, isn't that in the past? Like, why does he need to do more Mad Max? Is right. that like, same interview I've been citing that Ann Dolson did? He says some kind of, uh, and I don't hold this against him. Listen, it was a different world back then. Um, but he says some rather unenlightened things by modern standards about uh, when she asked if she, he could ever imagine a Mad Max movie that was really led by a woman mm-hmm. and what, like, the female role is in this kind of story. And he sort of uh, poo-poos the idea that it, makes sense that you can put a round hole in a square peg there and obviously came around to that in a big way um but it's it's really interesting just to to chart that progression to see how just sitting on that idea and and drinking in the world for 20 some odd years um 30 years at that point would have uh changed his his mind yeah it's a benefit to the fact that uh i mean you know there were earlier attempts where he wanted the film to get made and it didn't work out and that was to his benefit but also the fact that he didn't immediately go well i need a fourth one i think this film uh, you know, disappointed a little bit at the box office only in relation to the budget was so much bigger than two. Yeah, but it's and still, one. But it know, still was a good performer. Money. And Mel Gibson only got bigger. And you have to imagine if three years later, after Lethal Weapon 2 or whatever, he had said, I have a Mad Max 4 script, they'd go right away, anything you want. We want to keep Mel in house. Right. But he didn't. He grew as a person. He explored other things. He came back to it when the time was right. And he also came back to it with a very non-literal mind towards how to continue a franchise because it's just like this is just sort of a continuum this mm-hmm. is a world it's a story dynamic it's kind of a bond logic in yeah. that sense where it's just like you know you you have the circumstances that you need it doesn't really need to but now bond has fallen prey Ugh. to every movie has to explain why the past movies were connected to everything by else. the time this episode comes out we will know if they have rectified the damage done by specter we'll know whether or not uh, he had enough time to die but uh i I do, but you know, it, just to to balance out the cost of this movie, George Miller does get five cents every time someone mentions the word Thunderdome in any context. Yeah, he's getting uh, rich off. So he's doing fine. Let's play the box office game. I just okay. want to very quickly say, oh and I've said God. this before. The, the other approach to franchising that I love, that I wish someone would steal today, is the original Planet of the Apes, where every movie has a different lead character, and that's the way that they grow, rather than putting the same character through the same. Yeah, Nerd we, we, trials we, we, over and over we again. The box office game. Let's play the box office game. July 12th, 1985. Number one movie at the box office. Beyond Thunderdome? No. Ooh. It was number two. Ooh. Uh, number one is, I have to imagine, one of the biggest movies of the year. Very big. Of enduring 1985. hit. Of 1985. Uh, yes. Number one. The number one film of 1985. The number one film. Temple of Doom? No. Is that 1985? Or am I way off? You're, I don't know. It wasn't 1985, so I can't remember. I think it's 84. But is it a Spielberg? No. Interesting. It is 84. It is 84. Temple of Doom. Is it a franchise film at all? It launches a, a three-part series. Oh, oh a Beverly part? Hills Cop. Nope. <laughs> that's 84? Eight. Four. Yeah, that, yeah. That, that is number 15 yeah. at the box office, having done Still very playing. well. Yes. Wow. Okay. So it launches a little a little franchise. Uh, yeah, a little. You know, it, it has two sequels. It has two. And I suppose people occasionally have floated more, but it's never come to pass. It's never come to pass. Ben, you look like you're burning. We've never discussed it, but it, it's, it's highly major, likely that we will. It's a major, like, cultural mm-hmm. sort of property. Three movies. Three movies, and they're major cultural properties. And tell me about the movie Back star the situation in this. Of course. What a dummy I am. Sure. What a dummy you are. What a dummy I am. Um, number one, Back to the Future. Two weeks in, it's made $32 million, but on its way to 212. Yeah, humongous fucking movie. Humongous movie. Number two is Thunderdome, mm-hmm. which opens to 10. Mm-hmm. Pretty good. Good. You it's know. Thunderdome. 
and tops out at 36. Yeah. It's like triple its budget. Yeah. It did fine. It did fine. It just didn't do that kind of Mad Max, like most profitable small budget movie The other two were notorious for how much fucking profit. I think it also was not as big a hit in Australia as the other one. Thunderdome should have been left standing as like a children's playground. Yeah, sure. Kids love geodesic things. Yeah. yeah. Remember when we were kids? Like everything was anything, fucking geodesic. You slap geodesic on anything and I'm just right. like, give but me like it. like the Popeye town in Malta. Do you know this? That the Popeye yeah. set is still standing and you can just go visit it. And It's, it's in Malta? Malta. Yeah, right. Oh, cool. I was, I was going to say, you know, the last time I was here, the Matrix 4 news broke in the middle of this episode. Oh. And I thought that it was, I was, I had fingers crossed that the Popeye 2 it was going to, pa- no, it was going to be uh, Brewster <laughs> McCloud 2. It was going to oh, be announced God. in the middle of this. Of course. Yeah. Right. Uh, Robert Altman back to that direct. Would be fun. Number three. Big I'm going to make you refresh deadline at the end Hush. of this episode. Number three at the box <laughs> office. Okay. Is how to define mm, a sort of a sci fi family hmm. comedy. Hmm. Like sort of like a kind of like a movie you could watch at school, right? Like sort of. Is it a got, Joe Dante movie? Uh no, but it's th- not. But that Although, kind of energy. I would have loved to have seen him make this movie. I feel like he'd make a better version of this movie. This movie was a big if, hit. If this movie was, was on winner. TV and a commercial came on, it'd be a hearing aid commercial. <laughs> cocoon. Oh, cocoon. <laughs> well done. Good clue. Ron yep. Howard's Cocoon spawns a sequel, <laughs> uh, which does spawn a sequel. It does win an Oscar. For uh, visual for, effects no. and supporting actors. Yeah, two Oscars, right? Yeah. But Don Amici and uh, kind of a weird win in my mind. I don't think he's the best performance in that no, movie. No, it's any a story. very weird win, and it, of course, also notoriously got a DGA nomination. It yeah. was one of those when it, yeah, it was weird. But that movie does not hold up great. Uh, great score, though. Score Lovely slash. James Horner. Listen score. to it all the and time. If you think about it, they they kind of are just like big egg people. Yes, sure. Which is cool. I love. You that. don't even have to think that hard. It's pretty much that is what is going on now. Now, Big number four at the box office is the second most successful film of 1985. Oh, it's a sequel. Mm. It's an action film. First Blood, Rambo, Two First Blood, Rambo colon First Blood Part Two. Right. Yeah, that's how you, that's how it goes. Yeah. Sorry. I'm- uh, in which they were like, let's take this like pretty sensitive like dark thriller yeah. and just turn it into a movie where Stallone just like pumps people full of bullets right? Because it's first, while so shirtless. It's First Blood <laughs> then Rambo colon First, first Blood Part 2 and, and then Rambo it's Rambo 3. Yes, we've and been then, over this. And then Rambo and then John Rambo. I believe that's right. Weird. I can't remember the fifth one but yeah. Exactly. I think they're called Rambo yeah, and then yes. John Rambo. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay. Have you seen Rambo First Blood Part 2? Sure. Yeah. I would watch it on TV it has uh, a when great I was ending. from school right next yes. to Thunderdome. No, it's called the last one's called Rambo Last Blood, isn't it? I don't Whatever. Yes. yes. I it think must you're right. Be, yes. yes. Okay. All right. Number five is um it's a Western. It's a good movie. Good movie from a great director. Hmm. Relatively early in his directing career. Is Walter Hill? No. I guess it's not that. It's like ten years into his directing career. He's just hmm. had a long directing It's career. a Western. Started. It's not Silverado? No. But am I close? Is it that kind of thing? No. Not at all? Not really. Not close This at all. is more of like a slightly dark, revisionisty Western, master of the genre. So he's a master of Westerns. He does I would say. he does a lot of Westerns. He's done several. It's not costs. Oh, a million cost. ways to die in the West? No. You said that. master of the genre though. <laughs> yeah. That's how I got there. Yeah, Ben's not gonna know it. I like this movie. You like this movie? Yeah. I like a lot of movies this guy made. You like a lot of movies this guy made, you I say. I do. Okay. Revisionist early mm. in the career. It, but it's like early, but like later in. It's not, it's, it's not a Clint. It is a Clint. It is a Clint. Horses are involved. Uh, hmm. It's a, a Pale Rider? There we go. Wow. It's, a, it's a good one. 
Have you seen that one? I've not seen it. He's a preacher. Yeah. It's cool. But it's just one of those very, like, classic, stripped-down, Clint, um, sort of slightly neo-Westerns pre-Unforgiven, where, like, for some reason, even though they would do okay, Mm -hmm. and I think critics would kind of say, like, yeah, good job. Like, there just wasn't that, like, swell of, like, here it is. He's made his, like, Western, the, like, definitive Western. Can I ask you two questions? Sure. Do they, in this film, railroad him? Um, or is it the other? I would say it's more that there's a mining. It's like it's like there's like a sweet uh, town, a little town, Mm -hmm. and greedy miners are trying to like take it over, and he like protects them. Mm, Sounds like maybe they're trying to. They are kind of trying to. Well, they're trying to to mine cart him. Well, well, and five comedy. Because you're right. Because like even in those, it's like Pale Rider, right? That's a little more of like you know these poor guys are trying to get. They're gonna get taken over by the greedy people. And like High Plains Drifter or something like that. It's more like where he's like, I'm a monster. Right. You shouldn't be near me. When people me. are like, I like you. And he's like, no, I no. suck. <laughs> Fuck me. <laughs> uh, yeah, it's true. Yeah, yeah. And it's often he'll combine them. Yes. Like, you know, if he's in the movie, even right. if he's trying to help people and they're like, well, thanks. And he's like, don't thank me. I suck. <laughs> Goodbye. Please punch me. <laughs> Hail Rider. Um, but you know what? It's funny that you mentioned Silverado because that is debuting at number seven. Oh, not a hit. Wow. Yeah. Uh, you've also got Explorers with Ethan Hawke, right? Which Their is a Joe Dante film. Kids movie, yeah. Interesting. Uh, you also have St. Elmo's Fire, the um, uh, sort uh, of uh, like, uh, which is right. It's sort of the idea where they're just like, let's just do another Breakfast Club, but like, it's not a sequel. It just kind of sort of has like a lot of the same cast. And they're older. They and they're older now. now. But you know what I mean? Like the, yes. it is that weird sort of like spiritual sequel that has no actual yeah. relation. That Brad Pack shit was strong. Yes. Uh, and then also another movie we mentioned, some other movies, uh, The Goonies is at number mm. 10. The Goonies. Fletch mm. at number 11. Oh, my boy. <laughs> uh, and uh, Beverly Hills Cop number 15. Yeah, you know. There's this line in Fletch where he goes, um, He's like scammed his way into like a country club and the guy takes his order and he goes, I'll have a steak sandwich and a steak sandwich. Oh, you never mentioned that. It's good. No, like never, to drink. Never it's like to he's going to steak he's sandwich, gonna but he's, then he's going to get two. two. Yeah. Not going to get one blended. Um, mm. Ehrlich, thank you for being here. No, my pleasure. Uh, what, hey, what thank a, you for going beyond the Thunderdome. Thanks for going beyond yeah, the Thunderdome. Thank you for going beyond. I needed Would you say I needed that becoming a, a new dad is going beyond the Thunderdome? <laughs> I feel like I've been in the Thunderdome for right. the last three months, but I'm, I'm waiting to go beyond. Is there anything you want to plug, like uh, starting a family? Uh, or? Starting a family, it's a, sure. it's a great idea if you're looking for purpose and mm. lost and have uh, little uh, money uh, and just want to ensure that you will be panicked about everything beyond the power of your control for the rest of your time on this mortal coil. Uh, starting a family, yeah. recommended. But does it... Take away from existential crisis uh, or add to them it? exponentially. Oh. Effect. Yeah, I've been feeling a little hmm. too chill recently. Okay. Like, there's it's hard to thread the needle between wanting to care about something other than yourself, right. but not wanting to care about something so much that it drives you into uh, early insanity. And I've definitely fallen on the latter side of the fence. But so that's a um, uh, starting yeah. a family. Starting a family. Promo code. Your baby early. is so beautiful <laughs> and cute. I love, I love my my bun. Uh, <laughs> He's a little bun. He's a little bun. A little yeah. bun. Mr. Bun. He's a little um, I wrote a song this morning that was called uh, uh, It Goes Fuck. <laughs> it was really good. I write a song every morning for him. And it was like, You write a you, new one every morning? Yeah, every morning at 6 a.m. Yeah. when he wakes me up screaming in yeah. my face. And it was like, yeah. You uh, you thought, like, you, you just peed, but I thought it was a poop. Oh. But I thought it was a poop. I, I like the refrain. Yeah. yeah. 
Uh, I thought you just. It goes slowly. Yeah, I like that a lot. Uh, Well, thank you for being here. Uh, Yeah, Uh, yeah. Plug in, uh, plug, plug my baby. Plug Uh, your baby. Fighting in the war. Yeah, whatever. But it's also uh, right. I write reviews. Indie Wire. Indie Wire. The continued existence of humankind. Blank check with Griffin and Dave. That's plugging blank check. Thank you for joining the Five Timers Club. Um, and thank all of you for listening. Of course. Please remember to rate, review, subscribe. Thanks to Andrew Gudo, uh, Lee Montgomery for our theme song, Pat Reynolds and Joe Bowen for our artwork. Tune in next week for The Witches of Eastwick. That's right. Fantastic. And uh, on... Uh, That's right. Oh, let's get those witches. My name's Daryl Van Horn. Never rub another man's witches. <laughs> <laughs> We're going to have fun. And uh, uh, go to uh, patreon.com backslash blank check for some real nerdy shit. Or if you want to say some real nerdy shit, go to uh, blankies.red.com. And as always, David, I want you to load up deadline. And let's hope that we're getting the early good luck bump. Tell me what the top headline is on deadline. Super Tuesday Slugfest. Ex-DNC chair Donna Brazil tells RNC boss to, quote, go to hell on Fox News. Blames Russia. Ronna McDaniel calls Dems, quote, hopelessly divided. Why does deadline write, like, cable news recap? Yeah, this uh, fucking sucks. I will say the, the first bit of movie news is, uh, that's a podcast. Bruce McCloud 2, Bruce McCloud 2, Bruce McCloud 2, Bruce McCloud 2, Beyond Thundercloud. Business. Uh, film uh, exclusive A Quiet Places 2 A Quiet Place 2's Andrew Foreman Brad Fuller team with Chad Chahelski for Paramount Fast Car Vehicle so they're gonna make a car movie I guess okay fuck everything 